have a career as a professional DJ. Certainly got to get better, get better sound equipment. Welcome everyone, fabulous room in store. Michael Green has agreed to grace us with his presence. He's a friend of this room. He's a good friend. He's one of the smartest guys I know. And I thought it was time for Michael to uh, appear in the public square again. Michael, you're one of the most uh, requested speakers we've had in this space. So let me just invite you up to the stage right now. And three aces, if you could, uh, I don't know where you went. Three aces, you could help me moderate. Uh, all right, here we go. So another uh, another crazy week this week. Um, a lot of volatility. Michael is, uh, is all you know, one of the sharpest cookies on the on the block in terms of coming to market. So really curious to hear his thoughts on where we are. He's made a good point. Try to stop me from getting too bearish talking about, you know, index flows and market structure. I'd like to hear about that. Also, there's been a lot of this discussion, Michael's, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the impact of quadruple witch on the market. And I don't know, it's above my pay grade, but a lot of people, Phil Erlanger of, of uh, Quantitative Partners, sorry, Jeff Garbaz of who works with Phil Erlanger of Quantitative Partners has pointed out to the expiration of a lot of the in the money puts basically causing a put squeeze as those get liquidated, possibly forcing the market up. I never, I hesitate. My, it's hard enough for me to get longer term market corrections, right? I hesitate to hesitate to engage in short term corrections, but I'm sure some people will ask you the question. So maybe preemptively you could speak to that. I'd also remind everyone bigger picture as John Roke has pointed out repeatedly, even, you know, bear markets are, are tough. They're not the opposite of bull markets. Um, it's not uncommon to get, Vicious counter-turn rallies, John has pointed out, we've tweeted it out, that in the 2000-2002 bear market, when NASDAQ fell uh, by 80%, 46% of the trading days the market was actually up, and I believe there were 10 counter-turn rallies of over 15%, 15 counter-turn rallies of over 10%. So um, whether, you know, this is a turn, I personally don't think it is, or it's just the pause that refreshes and we're going to go down again, it's my own view, but, you know, it certainly be wrong, wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last time. Um, Michael Belkin was in here the other day. For those of you that didn't hear him, I urge you to go listen to the replay. He absolutely knocked the ball out of the park, a real tour de force. We had such an amazing room. We had so much firepower, so much intellectual capital in one room at one time. Never, I, I've never been in a room like that. I dare say I've never been to the fanciest of investor conferences where you've had so many smart people speaking at the same time. To listen to Michael Belkin in conversation with Michael Howe, Tom Thornton, Jeff Garbaz, Tony Greer. I'm missing some people I know. It was just, I mean, I paid good money to hear that. And the amazing thing, it's all free because we're all just trying to figure it out. And so we're very indebted to Michael Green uh, to share his wisdom. Um, and Michael, they didn't come here to listen to me. They came here to listen to you. So that intro, Michael Green, the floor is yours. Welcome. Go with it wherever you want, my friend. Well, thank you very much for the super kind intro, and I do actually want to echo um, one of the things that you just highlighted, which is, you know, that I am the smartest person. No, I'm joking. That um, that the resources that are available that are coming out in this cycle on Twitter in terms of the number of people that are willing to talk, um, that are contributing their voices, the voices of experience, I just think it's remarkable, and hats off to you, George, for kind of leading the way on pushing a lot of these spaces out, bringing a lot of your friends and thought leaders, um, you know, primarily from the buy side. Um, 
you know, I, I honestly find many of these more interesting, both for the sentiment purposes um, and for the information content than a lot of the stuff we get from cell site coverage. So it's, it is really remarkable. It's a, it's a remarkable. And, 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 yeah. And Mike, I really want to thank you again, because seriously, I mean, for people that, you know, aren't that familiar with Michael, I mean, he's, he's participated at the highest level of this industry. Um, he has, I have no commercial affiliation with Michael, but if you're interested, he's now in CIO or major domo at Simplex Asset Management. You can look up his funds. That's not why he's here. He was, he'd be here anyway. Just Michael and I met, um, we have, um, uh, mutual friends. I think in particular Jim Chanos introduced us to one of his conferences. We just kind of, you know, share intellectual capital. And I think we're, you know, we want to help people. That's why we're here. And Michael, I salute you. I thank you. Before you go into your rant, a very important question to ask you. So for those of you who don't sure. know, the, the reason that this call is being happened right now at 12 noon Eastern, 9, 9 a.m. Western, is Michael is in tow with his dogs. And Michael, I've never asked you, what type of dogs do you have? Because I am dog crazy. Could you talk about your dogs first? Uh, yeah, no. So I have, I have two absolutely terrible rescue mutts. Um, one of which my wife came home with, and we decided we were only going to foster as we found a more permanent dog. And then, um, as is always the case, once you start fostering a dog, you can't get rid of that dog. And so we now have two dogs, um, both of which were supposed to be taken care of by my wife and children. And we all know how that goes. So that explains why I am a professional dog walker every day. Um, but it is one of the few things that so... I really... Yeah, so, so Michael, I have to interrupt you. So you're literally are redefining the term, because Michael, you let, let in the Bay Area, if I'm not mistaken, but you literally are lending new definition to the term Hotel California. These dogs can check in, but they can't check out. Is that right? Yeah, the, the, minute, the minute you get dogs, um, they become the fathers. You guys there? Yeah, we're here. Go ahead. We're here. Oh, sorry. Hold on one second. I'm trying to switch... Uh... Which has that? Go for it. And Tommy Thornton, I'm going to get you up here as well. Hold on. Let's get some uh, three aces. If you wouldn't mind co-host, I'm going to make you a co-host. I'm here, George. Yeah, I just I sent you an money. invite to be. I just sent you an. Okay. I just sent you an invite to be co-host, three aces. So got it. Okay, good. All right. So we got Tommy Thornton up here, and if my friend Alan Levinson would come up here, that would be great. I invited him to speak. He's the smartest guy in this room who you've never heard from. So, Alan, I know you've been kind of hiding, but if you'd be willing to, like, say a couple words, that'd be awesome. So, Michael, are you back? You got your headset all set? I don't know where he went. So, while we're waiting for him, Three Aces, uh, you you know Michael? You're a fan of Michael's Three Aces? Absolutely. We're good buddies. Um, one of the smartest minds on the planet with you and, and Tommy's a, another brilliant mind. Um, still waiting for uh, our good friend, uh, Mr. Chanos to accept the invite. He's another one. Um, but yeah, Michael, I love the way Michael thinks and he always covers all four corners of the room. He's a tremendously thoughtful and well thought out uh, strategic thinker. And um, he's always got, you know, very, very highly intelligent things to say. All right, Hi, Michael. All right, okay. So I'm, right, I'm, back. I'm a fish. Right. I'm, a, I'm officially back. And now that Excellent. you guys have said all those wonderful things, um, yeah, Michael, Michael right Green, we're talk, we, Mike Green, we're talking behind your back. All right, I, 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 I heard it. Okay, okay. So, um, one of the things I always caution people, I like to prefer, I, I prefer to have people think I'm the dumbest person in the room because it means I'm saying something that nobody else wants to agree with. 
Um, but unfortunately, I think there's a lot of, you know, fairly good thinking that, that uh, you alluded to at the start. What, what happened this week, and, you know, I was shouting this out on Twitter, and as George, you pointed out, I've, you know, said, don't get too bearish, because we just have not seen any meaningful interruption in the flows that really matter, that kind of baseline flow that's coming in from the Vanguard, BlackRocks, et cetera. People still have jobs. The money is going into the ETFs and the mutual funds. Um, target date funds are, are rich in terms of what they're receiving. Um, and you could just smell it in the last week. The bears just pushed and pushed and pushed. And hedge funds got to you know near their lowest invested positions post-global financial crisis. Um, bearish sentiment was absolutely extreme. And, you know, one of the amazing things about what kicks off uh, in this world where, you know, give or take half the market is basically hodling regardless of the actual underlying fundamental developments. When they try to change their positioning, the market just rips back in your face. And so you get rallies like we just saw. Um, You know, I, I, I do think that the option expiry played a role in it. I do think that once that momentum kicked in, you see everybody who has in the money puts suddenly forced to deal with the fact that not only are they underinvested because they saw it as so clear to be super bearish, but now they're in the money puts or Delta one and moving against them, um, forcing them to give back any of the gains that they'd made in the sell-off. Um, and so we just saw, I, you know, this felt like a crazy amount of short covering. Um, if you looked at any factor, it really didn't matter which one. Um, You know, you could look at the value factor, the short component of the value factor where you're long, um, you know, companies that you that that would show up as undervalued in a systematic fashion, whether that's uh, tied to book value or that's tied to an income metric. um, The short factor dramatically outperformed. Same thing was true in momentum, right? The short factor of momentum dramatically outperformed. If you went and looked at junky, unprofitable companies in particular, um, the names of investors that we all you know know and love to hate, people like Kathy Wood, they were just overshorted and completely illiquid in terms of the cover on the on the reverse. And you saw this in Chinese stocks, et cetera, right? It was just there was no easy answer. And in the degrossing and the trying to monetize some of the puts, um, monetize shorts, et cetera, it was ripped back in everybody's face, exactly as I had been worried about. Um, so I, I don't think there was any economic signal. I don't think that the comments coming out of the Fed can be construed as particularly hawkish or, or uh, dovish in terms of their behavior. I've heard both arguments since. To me, the most interesting thing that happened with the Fed um, was that Jerome Powell told us that they are disregarding and insensitive to the risks of an economic slowdown. Um, that's going to make it very hard to back away in the same way that it made it very hard to back away from the transitory inflation calls um, that you know people perceive as having gotten us to the point that we're at. Um, so it, it, it seems like the Fed, like I would argue that the Fed baked into the cake at least the next three Fed hikes, um, possibly a 50 basis point in there, although I think that's, not, that's low probability. Um, and that that's going to happen in a manner very similar to the Trichet moments in 2008 and 2011. It's happening into a slowing economy where the long and variable leads um, um, lag, I'm sorry, of monetary policy. We don't know how it's going to hit. Um, and we're already seeing a dramatic tightening 
of financial conditions, both on the income statement side for companies that are struggling with pricing power and starting to see some pushback against that, uh, to the high yield markets where, you know, until Boeing managed to get, uh, I think a much more important catalyst, by the way, in the rally was Boeing managing to get off an investment grade issue at a reasonable price. You know, the, the credit refinancing markets had been closed um, for a period of almost two weeks. Um, that's what kills credit. It's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's very rarely the depth of an economic decline that causes um, an absolute collapse in credit quality. It's when it comes into question, are you going to be able to refinance the debt that the problems emerge? Right, Michael, that, that's great. Let's start with that. So um, <laughs> I think Michael, M is the lucky, is, I, I don't know, Michael, do you know what your name means in Latin or any other word? Because all the smart, there are too many smart Michaels around. There's Michael Green, there's Michael Howell, there's Michael Belkin, there's Michael Guyad. I mean, when I say Michael, all these smart guys turn up. But in any event, um, what you just described, uh, our mutual friend Michael Howell has been talking about, you know, the, 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 that's what the we we're prone to get these, you know, refinancing crises from time to time. And, 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 and that's what wakes up the central bankers. So when you juxtapose and you've been right, you know, hats off to you on the structural inflows. It's been the backbone of what's been driving this market. But then you juxtapose some of the comments you just made and comments of others about, you know, outlook for uh, you know, but view what the Fed just said. You know, Marshall and K will start to decline and decrease in liquidity. Maybe get a recession. Blah 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 blah. I mean, where does that leave you? I'm not gonna say what's your view of the market. It's too general a question. But when what is it? What what conviction does it leave you with about anything? Or is it just a very sort of muddied outlook from where you sit? I mean, what what would you tell the average person in the room to be focused on? So to me, I think it's very clear that it's muddied, right? Um, we don't get the sort of chaos that you have when you shut the world down for the very first time in, you know, give or take 500 years since the Black Death or yeah, maybe a little less extreme. Let's talk about wars. Um, you know, you don't wake up from that experience without having to rethink every seasonal adjustment that you see without having to rethink all the base case analysis in terms of how the economy actually functions, who's going to show up to work, what the characteristics are like. This is just a mess, right? From an econometric standpoint, anyone who tells you they know exactly what's going on is either one lying to you or more frightening, has no idea themselves um, that they don't know what they don't know. Um, so this is a mess, right? And to express anything other than uncertainty around it, I think would be very hard. Um, I think the biggest area where I differ from the Fed, um, you know, or many others, is, is most people will look at a trailing inflation metric and a interest rate met metric and say, you know, oh, well, that creates loose monetary policy. And I, I'm not sure that I would share that view. I, you know, the way I would describe it is anything that consumes the dollars in your pocket rather than giving you more of them is tight monetary policy. High commodity prices are one of those things that are draining the pocketbooks of the average American, um, most specific and, and much worse, as I've talked about around the rest of the world. Um, you know, when people don't have the money to spend, that is liquidity tightening, right? And it's money, you know, the, the, the dynamic of raising interest rates in that framework 
is that you're taking money out of the pocketbook of the person who wants to buy a house and pay for their, their home ownership and putting it in the hands of a bank or of a wealthy individual who owns treasuries and has a much lower propensity to spend that money. Um, so I, everything I see says that we are facing a very aggressive and significant slowdown where we have taken what were very strong balance sheets um, and income statements in the immediate aftermath of the, um, of the pandemic. And we have now reversed that and turned it into in, an increasingly stressed, particularly lower end consumer. Right. So the, the K-shaped recovery that many have talked about, it, I mean, yeah, it's great if you're at the upper end of the socioeconomic strata, your house is up 25% in the last year. The S&P is still up, I believe, on a year-on-year basis. And, you know, nothing to worry about. But if they're low end, not so much. So, Michael, going back to something you said, um, and I know we have a good mutual friend, I think, in Jim Walker. And he was talking, if you remember the room we had a couple months ago, he was talking about the ex-post and the ex-ante world. And we still haven't figured out. He actually said, you know, some companies, I don't even know if they're making or losing money right now, given how prices have moved around so much. And his concern was the increasing uncertainty. And, you know, he's, he's, an, he's an Austrian guy, but whatever. Let's not pick on what we disagree. Let's try to think about what he's saying that makes sense. That the increasing uncertainty associated with all these incredibly uh, changing macroeconomic variables will maybe give us rise to a slowdown investment intentions, you know, aside from what you just talked about, which is at the, at the basic consumer level, people's purchasing power is going to squeeze. So he was actually, I think, calling for a recession. I don't want to get into the semantics. It's a recession. It's not a recession because at the end of the day, you know, you just want to make money. It's the old Ned Davis line. Do you want to be right? Do you want to make money? But just sort of in terms of your framework, do you think that, I mean, it sounds like the odds of a recession in your view are, are rising. I mean, how would you handicap that right now, Michael? Yeah, I, I think the odds are absolutely rising. Um, you know, I would argue that we failed to meet the technical definition of a recession, but almost certainly met the um, the growth aspect of a recession in Q2. Um, certainly looks to me like growth is going to end up being negative um, in Q2. Now, I don't think that'll be sustained to get kind of the two quarters, and it's not at all clear yet that we're going to see rising unemployment rates um, or, or employment peak yet, which is the other component that tends to be necessary. Um, but we have definitely been rebuilding inventories across the industrial sector, um, and we're even starting to rebuild inventories in places like housing, um, where sales are down, supply is up. We're certainly not at high levels of supply, um, but it's coming. And, you know, the dramatic increase in interest rates is slowing down the marginal buying activity much more than it has slowed down the delayed um, production, particularly in new houses, right? Because it's been slow to get supplies. So stuff is coming to market. Um, I think a lot of people are very focused on the yield curve. Um, and I and others have focused people on the forward yield curves, which have already inverted in a manner similar to what they did in early 2018. Um, you know, yes, an inversion of the yield curve is imminent. If the Fed hikes again, I would expect the yield curve to fully invert, um, particularly at the twos, tens point. Um, but that kind of starts the shot clock for like nine to 15 months, right? And I, I, this is one of those things that I think tends to throw people off is when the yield curve inverts and then it starts to steepen, 
Um, it's usually because the Fed has begun to back away from its policy choices um, and it's begun to cut interest rates. That's part of the reason why I highlight it feels like Powell has baked in at least three before they pause to make any changes because they have poo-pooed the growth dynamic. So even if we continue to see evidence of slowing over the next couple of months, it doesn't feel like the Fed is going to reverse course. Therefore, it feels almost certain that we're going to get an inversion of the yield curve. And that kind of starts kicks off the starting gun. But when the Fed reacts, we all know what's going to happen. People are going to say, oh, here's our soft landing. The Fed is going to engineer it. Uh, don't fight the Fed, you know, do all these sorts of wonderful things. Um, and, and that tends to be the October 2007 sort of moment, right? Or the September 2000 type moment, or even I would argue the January, um, you know, the kind of 2019 into January 2020 rally, where it was obvious the rest of the world was slowing and, the, and it was perceived that the Fed was getting in front of it and, and you know, working very hard to be stimulative, et cetera. Um, so it just feels like that phase of it is coming, right? That it doesn't necessarily immediately translate to a bear market. And the last thing that I would point on that is the reason we all talk about recessions is it's really hard to get a significant bear market without a recession, right? For all the reasons that you've heard me talk about. People have jobs. People are contributing to their 401ks. That's money flowing into the stock market. It's just really hard, Um to get that bear market without the recession. And so that's why we're all spending our time, you know, flapping our gums on, are we going to have a recession or not? Um, yeah. Mike, Mike, could you just review for people um, might be helpful just for everyone in the room, how the variable lags between monetary policy and the economy. And that therefore you mentioned nine to 15 months for 12 to 18 months, what it doesn't really matter. Then therefore by dint of decisions that were made a year ago, what's going to happen in the next few months is kind of already baked in the cake. I mean, subject in terms of Fed policy. I mean, of course, we got oil shocks and wars and whatever. But the idea, I think there's just sort of a misguided notion or arrogance, hubris, naivete. That, you know, people have put, put undeserved faith in the monetary authorities as if they're flying a Boeing, you know, 757 jetliner. You can just tweak it here, tweak it there, and, and we can micromanage the economy. But so, so two questions around that. A, that to what extent is what we're going to see the next few months already baked in the can cake by dint of decisions that were made, you know, a long time ago? And B, um, what's what do you reckon the chances of a so-called soft landing? I and mean, people are looking for Goldilocks. They haven't found her yet. But, you know, you read the same stuff I do. Everyone's talking about the, you know, huge probability of a, of a big policy error. So two questions. A, or, you know, what we're about to already baking the cake, and then B, what's the chance of a big policy error looking out for further further on? Um, well, so, I, so first of all, I do think we've made a policy error. I think it's already too late. Um, it does, there are things that you can do, but the, the issue with monetary policy lags, this was described by Milton Friedman, is the dynamics of, of you know, cha the changing water temperature on a shower where the handle is, you know, 30 floors away from the water heater, right? Um, you know, you are changing the quantity, all, all a uh, faucet is doing, a single handle faucet is doing, is changing the proportion of hot water and cold water that is being mixed. And as you open up the pipes for the hot water, it's allowing, you know, uh, the, cold, the water that is cooled in the pipes to be replaced by water that is coming directly from the water heater. And so the temperature slowly rises 
the further away you are, the longer the lag is going to be, right? Well, monetary policy works exactly like that. It basically, you know, you are lowering the cost of funds, you are reducing the relative attractiveness of various forms of secondary issues by raising their prices um, and making more attractive the refinancing and issuance of new paper for borrowers. Um, that just takes a long time, right? They, they cut interest rates. Everybody first, you know, pauses and wonders, was there a signal there that suggests that the economy is much worse and therefore we should pause in the reissue of paper? Um, you know, that slowly gets resolved and, and the, you know, issuance engine grinds through and, you know, you're six to 12, nine months off into the future before anybody actually sees this, right? Just think about the process of applying for a mortgage refinancing. It's slow. It takes time. Um, and the reverse happens when expectations for rate tightening begin to occur. Um, most people focus on things like the 10 or the 30 because they're very focused on the housing sector. I would direct people, if you're thinking about the corporate sector, you should really be paying attention to five-year rates um, and even two-year rates because those basically tell you the cost of refinancing for most of the shorter-term borrowers who need to refinance on a continuous basis. And in that space, you know, we've really seen some pretty significant increases in the cost of financing. Um, and as I, you know, um, I put out a tweet the other day that highlighted this, Jim Walker actually commented on it, I think we're very much aligned on this. You know, when, when the Fed talks about a neutral rate, they think of it as effectively the center of a distribution, right? Like what is the, what is the correct rate for the economy as an aggregate? And so the answer is it could be an incredibly high rate and a firm like Microsoft or Amazon would theoretically still be able to find viable projects to invest in. And there are some firms out there, even with a zero percent interest rate, that can't find anything to do other than refinance their debt. About 20% of the U.S. corporations today are what we refer to as zombie companies, where 100% of their cash flow is going to the servicing of their debt. That means that they are completely subject to the whims of the market to refinance their debt. Um, and effectively, you know, coming off of a zero base, the marginal neutral rate for them is zero. And so now that the refinancing rate has risen above that, you're starting to see the tenor and duration of those loans shorten. They're moving towards refinancing. And many of these companies are already seeing their stock prices, um, their bonds, et cetera, get hit, not just from a um, credit quality standpoint, but reflecting the fact that as you get closer and closer to those refinancing deadlines, the maturity of those bonds the odds grow higher and higher that they're going to have some form of a credit event that, you know, in equity shows up as much lower valuations because you're shortening the life of the asset. So, so you know, Mike, Michael, let me interrupt you there. Okay. So I agree with everything you just said, but then if you step back and someone tweeted out the other day, I think I retweeted it because it appealed to my most deeply held prejudices that the, you know, easy money or more money, it's the it's the problem. It's not the solution. So my question to you, my challenge to you would be, as we're both students of the Japanese equity market going back decades, when you get these zombie companies, the idea that you know we need to keep them afloat, I, I would actually argue that maybe we need to get on with a little Schumpeterian house cleaning, a little creative destruction, and you know you had this. This is just this dynamic: the over financialization of the economy people buying back stock, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like, that's actually the problem. And so 
might we be better off if we just let some of these zombie companies go and clean up the system? So I, I absolutely agree with you. And by the way, this is where I overlap with the Austrians and the Schumpeterians, who's actually an outgrowth of the same school of thought. Right. Um, we need to liberate those resources and free them up to be used more productively. Um, you know, there is don't don't take this the wrong way. Anyone who's a big investor in Macy's or J.W. Nordstrom's or Kohl's department stores, et cetera. I mean, these are the J.C. Pennies of tomorrow. They don't need to exist. Um, and they're taking up a ton of commercial real estate and they're taking up a ton of you know, workers, et cetera, that nobody cares about anymore. And, and I maybe uh, I'm just being very clear. I'm speaking from a macro sense. You know, maybe there is an overwhelming need for the physical presence of Kohl's department stores. But for the life of me, I can't figure out what it is. Um, that's what a recession is for, is to liberate and free up those resources and you just heard the capitalist owning line um, that makes it sound very noble and wonderful. And it's also to create unemployment and unemployability, particularly for the older workers who will never have a job that good again and potentially lose everything in the process, which is the unfortunate side effect of it. Um, and, and you have to be sympathetic and you have to be empathetic to that condition because it just sucks. Um, that's what the Fed is trapped and struggling with. That's what the Japanese have been trapped and struggling with. When you enter into a corporatist regime where the benefits and safety net of our society is largely tied to your employment status, um, you can't afford to let those zombie companies fail. And uh, unfortunately, that means that, you know, when if you think about those zombie companies and they are, you know, 20% of the total corporate universe. And then think about the households that are also in that same space um, that are struggling uh, to make ends meet and don't have enough in savings, et cetera. Um, all of those underlying conditions um, mean that the Fed has to step in earlier and earlier and earlier, changing direction and preventing that resetting of the economy. Right. It's just, it's a feedback loop where the original sin was probably created in 1998. Um, <laughs> Helen Greenspan, please call your office. I mean, Mel, yeah. Michael, Michael, did you put your finger on it? Isn't that the problem? Because we went down this road and it's the old, you know, never get a, never let a good crisis go to waste. I mean, they just never hesitate to, to, to come out in the runway with the foam, the hazmat suits, and just put money in the freaking system. We're like stuck in this, de stuck in this ever-ending monetary debt dynamic. I mean, how, how do we get out of it? I'm, I'm not at all sure how we do, right? That's, and th this is unfortunately where, you know, we, we sometimes, or you would, you would expect me to use Austrian as a dirty word or you know, anything else. Like, no, these are super valid points, right? The right time for the Austrians to be screaming their heads off was 1998 and saying, wait a second, you got to let these companies fail, right? Um, we chose not to do that. And now we're even more trapped. And by the way, the, you, you know, Healthcare is even more expensive. Households are even more dependent upon their employment. The dynamics of your unemployment insurance are contingent on what your last job was. So if you have a decent job, you'll do everything you can to hold on to that job. A sizable fraction of our um, population is past the age of job retraining. Don't take this the wrong way, George, but if either you or I found ourselves unemployed, um, there is no possible scenario in which I can be repurposed into a plumber. Um, it's just not going to happen. 
Michael, I didn't. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one because I'll get shot if I come with my next off well, mark. But, 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 but Michael, let me. I, I've first. I've spent the vast majority of my career waiting through shit anyway. But uh, my. <laughs> My 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 ability to fix somebody's uh, bathroom is is de- if you're relying on me, we're in the, right, that right. that truly Michael, is the end of civilization. Right, Michael, I'm going to have that as, as I'm Jewish. I can say this about myself as a middle aged, sixties plus uh, Jewish male using tools like plumbing equipment and screwdrivers just doesn't work. So <laughs> anyway, so but seriously, getting on, we got to get back on point, Michael. Um, so you were talking about the debt dynamics, but I would also say if you look at equity land, and I had this conversation with Michael Howell the other day after our last room. We talk about meat refinancing risks in debt markets. Well, if you look at the equity market and you think about the refinancing risks, for instance, some of these cash flow negative unicorns, which came public at, you know, 30 times sales or whatever. Now they're down to like 15 times sales, but they're cash flow negative. I mean, imagine the, the entire global portfolio just to pick on someone. I mean, these things, they, 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 they have a problem. It's a cash flow problem. This is a sort of Rube Goldbergian perpetual money machine where you, you, ha- you have to keep the dream alive to keep the money coming in. And the bid ass spread between where the first growth guy wants to sell and the first value guy wants to buy, it's like you got a little bit of a discontinuous market here, if you know what I mean. So, and then you have that on the one side. And then on the other side, you know, you have companies like Tesla where say whatever you want the grandiose promises the how shall we say taking liberty with accounting conventions etc etc he gets away with it and then monkey see monkey do the next thing you go you got what's his name trevor milton rolling a truck down the hill with nikolai pulling the same stunt you have lordstown motors and they have you know i can't remember it was rivian or somebody the other day said you know they wanted to raise all that half the orders disappeared so this whole idea about malinvestment, even though it's a much overused term, not just in credit markets, but in equity markets, and you have sort of an un- uninformed uh, or, or not sufficiently informed investor class, again, again, it's original sin. We keep doing it. And the problem is the amount of capital that's being incinerated, it's just mind-boggling. And so, so, so again, take the analysis you just laid out there, and, and as you look at the equity market, I mean, the Kathy Woods, not to pick on her, as you know, she makes me hot, but not in the way that people would think. Um, it just, it, it, this is just ma- malinvestment on just an, an outrageous, um, uh, unprecedented uh, extent. And so, you know, other than the bubble just collapsing, I mean, surely it can't be, oh, we have to keep Tesla going up because now Tesla's X percent of the S&P. And if the S&P goes down, the pension plans get bored. But I mean, it's absolutely insane. We had, I don't know if I'm on a rant right now, but you know, Tommy Thornton and the others were talking the other day about the coming for the generals, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Teslas of the world. I mean, you know, in what universe is Tesla thought to be a general? I mean, what what has the world come to? So maybe your framework is applies to equity markets, Michael, particularly those most dependent on the ever uh, ever continuing flows of liquidity. I mean, it's just insanity. I don't know. Well, so I. Yeah, no, I, well, look, I, I think you're right, but I would just emphasize that the reason, if you're going to talk about a crisis, you don't want to talk about equity, you want to talk about credit. And the reason why is because credit is the one asset that has a change of control feature embedded in it. That's what its purpose is, right? It is, I'm going to forego most of the upside associated with this venture and let you manage it for the benefit of the equity holders. But if things start to go really wrong, I'm going to own the asset. And there's predatory 
you know, lending in that form, which we call lend to own. And there's, you know, overly accommodative lending, which is, hey, it's over collateralized by shitty equity, right? Um, I, I would suggest that, that we're in the transition period from the um, lend because you've got too much money framework, um, where for the most part, people don't care that much about losing that money to the um, lend to own and change of control type features um, that tend to cause, you know, quite a bit more outrage. Um, equity, you can always lose, right? I mean, there are people, of course, on an individual basis who will get themselves too wrapped up in equity, but very rarely does equity have significant leverage associated with it, et cetera. Um, it can't really be used as collateral unless it's heavily um, over collateralized, right? So security is lending at 50%, et cetera. Um, I, I just think, I think we're moving away from that model where it becomes, you know, kind of like free capital and it allows you to easily speculate to it's becoming, the conditions are tightening rapidly. And, and again, I would just part, point to an alternate read on things like what's happening in the commodities market, you know, if you want to initiate a position in the nickel market or the, or the oil markets today, they've raised the initial margin conditions. Where do you get that margin? Well, you got to sell something if you're fully levered, right? right? So, you know, that's, that's what's underway. We've got tightening got going on all over the place. Got it. All right. I'm gonna, uh, Mike, I'm going to ask you one last question and then I want to open it up. Um, so as your student of fund flows, particularly talking about ARC, I mean, and, and I don't mean this to be a Kathy, I mean it to be just sort of as a, as a commentary on the speculative uh, element of the investor class. The fact that in a six weeks period, and you'll correct me, I think there was like something like $850 million came into our fund. I mean, these are things you don't see at bottoms. So maybe this is the most graphic illustration of what you're talking about. Don't, don't count out the fund flows. And so from where I sit is I'm glass half empty. Some would say 80% or 90% empty. For me, it's the lesson she'll be presented until learned. Like she will not bottom until, you know, this stops. And you may say, George, I got bad news for you. You're right. The problem is this could go on your worst nightmare. This could go on for quite a while. So could you, and, and so could you comment about the flows into art specifically? And there was one aspect to it as well. And I was told not to worry about this. I, I asked someone the other day, how much of those uh, the, the shares outstanding possibly were the result of creating shares for people to borrow? And someone gave a good answer. They said, no, you should really look at the short interest. The short interest really hasn't gone up that much. So could you just speak to the ARC flows in particular as it relates to, you, to, to that fund, but also more generally what it says about the speculative juices and, and, and the attitudes of, 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 of the investor class and how it informs your outlook? Michael, are you there? George, yeah, no, I'm. I'm a hard time. All right, hold on. All right, Michael, did you hear the question? Yeah, I did. I did hear the question. Um, so I'd say that there's a couple of things. One is, remember, it's going to take a. So yes, absolutely. Arc received inflows, not just short covering. Um, I track her performance um, and her flow dynamics net of the short creation process. And then I also have begun to include the creation process of SARC, right? So the inverse product um, and effectively am netting those against each other. Um, you know, one of the 
ways to think about what is transpired um, is it, it takes an awful lot to effectively rid people of the buy the dip type mentality. So there are definitely people who are quote unquote bargain hunting. There are also people who are using ARC as a more liquid way to cover multiple shorts across the Kathy portfolio, right? So many people had shorted various names in the equity, um, the equities that Kathy was large in. As the borrow costs on those began to increase, they likely began to try to cover it. Um, one of the quick ways of anesthetizing yourself in a market rally uh, is to just go out and buy the, the fund itself because it's going to behave very similar to the parts. It'll be more liquid than the individual parts as well. Um, and the last is, is that Kathy retains significant distribution in places like Japan um, through Nico Securities that is, I think, underappreciated in terms of the, the source of flows, right? So whether that's coming in the form of structured products that are being issued, whether that's coming in outright investment, um, I don't think we can, you know, treat a billion dollars worth of inflows in a vehicle that took in somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 billion 12 months ago um, as being that, you know, overwhelming. Um, it just feels like it, it, you know, I described it earlier. There was an orgy of bearishness. It just became super straightforward. The right answer was let's, you know, short everything that this woman has touched. Um, and I think ultimately that's going to end up being proven right. <laughs> but the the, pro the process of getting there is not a straight line. All right, guys. So it's, it's the old linear thinking. All right, let's go to questions. So we're going to do this in order now. I want to do three aces and then shrub and then deer point. Three aces, go, go for it. Thanks, George. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing? Um, By the way, did you get that invite? Did you find that invite? I was looking for it. Um, I'll shoot you an email a little bit later okay. on. All right. Sounds Thank good. Thank you, though. Yeah. Hey, hey, Michael, I'm just curious. It, it seems like there's a battle between price discovery uh, crowd and permanent capital. And and um, and I'm just curious, a couple parts to the same question. A, um, do you think the central banks have a hand in, in equities here now? And and also, are we calling, you know, the ETFs and the mutual fund, uh, the 401k investors, are we calling that permanent capital now? And how big of a chunk is it in the market? Thank you. Um, so so first of all, I, I would not describe it as permanent capital, but it is much more like what we see in the crypto space. I would just describe it as HODL type capital. Right. Um, you know, there's very little that you can get them to do to sell it's different than permanent capital in that there's inflows, right? And that, that's the part that I always emphasize. The minute those flows stop, then the dominant players become or, or become overwhelmed by a significant move. Then those flows become overwhelmed by the active participants, right? A hedge fund manager deciding that they're going to raise cash, they're going to allocate to energy versus technology. You know, that's, that money moves far more frequently um, and it moves effectively inside the market in a way that can only be measured by tracking positioning through various, you know, banks, et cetera. Right. Um, the, the much bigger flows that I talk about in terms of the 401ks or the pension flows, et cetera, those move more slowly. They're more easily tracked. Their behavior is, um, uh, extremely price insensitive and it tends to be momentum reinforcing. 
Um, and so these are, you know, those are the areas that I would just argue that like the, the only difference that I brought to the table was in saying, Hey, wait a second, those funds actually matter as well. Um, cause most people treat them as if they're, <laughs> hold on one sec. My dog is bothering a, uh, a kid. Um, so I, I, in terms of impact and scale, um, I continue to emphasize that the right way to think about the passive bid is like a tide or a, um, a current in a river, right? And then just imagine all the active players have to deal with that current, um, but are going to swim, right? And they're going to make active choices. If you watch their behavior, you know, from like a satellite view sort of thing or a bird's eye view, you'll see the, the active market move across, but everything is continually being pushed in the direction of the current, right? And somebody trying to swim against the current is just going to exhaust themselves and eventually get killed, um, eventually drown or have to get out of the water. Um, I just think that's the most useful analogy to think of it, right? This is the underlying current. It's momentum based. It absolutely does not hold cash. Um, prices go higher. It thinks that's indicative of better opportunities, not worse opportunities. And it's kind of everything that you think is crazy and silly and stupid um, is, a, is somewhat of a structural feature of the market. And every once in a while, you get somebody like a Kathy Wood who invests that way anyway, right? And effectively picks up additional flows. And, you know, if you're swimming forward or downstream, you're going to look like you're a really fast swimmer. But it's not you, it's the current. Brilliant, Michael. Thanks for that. All right. So now we have my good friend, Shrub. Michael, I don't know if you know Shrub, but Shrub is really good on um, fun flows, and he's always really good at tweeting out the fun flows from the Merrill Lynch stuff every week. So, Shrub, good to see you. What's hey, up, George. Thank what's you up, so much. What's up? what's up, my man? Go for it. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so, um, Mike, thank you for this. Actually, I, I just really want to continue from where you left. So, year to date, we've had $180 billion inflows into equities, according to BAMO. Last year, same period, we had 347 billion. So obviously, even though we're in a technical bear market, we're still having serious inflows, 180 billion inflows. And even this week, uh, U.S. equity funds got 32 billion of inflows, which is actually extremely uh, bullish inflows, which for me is actually bearish in the sense that people are piling in. But here's the important thing to your uh, following the current example. Although we had an inflow last year, we had 350 billion inflows year to date, but credit had 82 billion inflows at the same time. Now, this time round, we had 180 billion inflows in equities, but credit lost 100 billion at the same time. So this is a divergence from last year. And just this week as an example, the 32 billion of inflows into equities saw at the same time the 10th week of outflows from credit of 15 billion. Now, where am I when I get to this? So at some point, things break. And one simple example is Tesla has a market cap of a trillion. And, you know, that benefits from the equity inflows. At the same time, Tesla pulled a one measly billion ABS deal, one billion ABS deal. Although there was demand for it, they still pulled it out for various reasons. So what I'm trying to get to is, at some point, those equity inflows are going to get hurt by those credit outflows. And I'm using the Tesla example as an extreme example where you have a trillion of equity being impacted potentially by a one billion of a bond issuance. So 
the question I have, which is a billion dollar question, is at which point do at which point does the credit market break the equity market? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and you actually bring up a really important point. And I would just highlight that when you talk about credit, right, you're really talking about high yield and investment grade. Um, if you look at something like the Vanguard target date funds, which capture about 85% target date funds or uh, from Vanguard and others capture about 85% of the 401k dollars, they're almost all invested in passive strategies. And they tend to be an allocation that looks something like, you know, Vanguard total market index for equity longs, which is market cap weighted, the largest give or take 3,500 stocks. Um a uh, $1.6 trillion fund, I always point this out, a $1.6 trillion fund that carries no cash, zero, right? Um, I think it's actually currently at a billion in cash. It was at negative 100 million, you know, uh, last quarter. Um, And that sort of vacillation is part of what you're describing because nowhere in that allocation, they've got the Vanguard Total Market Index and they'll have the Vanguard Total Bond Index, which is basically the old um, Lehman Bond aggregate. That's 70% rates, and mortgages and only 30% investment grade credit and there's no high yield in there whatsoever, right? So when you talk about credit flows, I would just emphasize that that tends to be a function of much more discretionary activity. It tends to be people treating HYG um, as a trading vehicle to choose to allocate to credit, et cetera. And we're very much seeing that dynamic. Um, If you synthetically invest in HYG right now, did someone say something? Oh, okay. Um, if you synthetically invest in HYG, you're going to pick up another 200 basis points of yield on a product that has already gone from yielding low fours to mid sixes. You know, so you're talking about an effective yield on high yield now of, of you know anywhere from eight to eight and a half percent if you structure it properly. Um, you know, that's a function of the type of positioning that I'm talking about. It's the discretionary manager saying, okay, we get what's up. Interest rates are going higher um, and the economy is slowing and therefore credit is deteriorating and therefore I don't want to have anything to do with credit, right? And there's very little retail and passive flow on the other side of it. So they're saying, Um, I don't want to do anything to do with credit, so I'm going to hide in the equity market because that's just liquid. (laughs) <laughs> they're going to they're going to hide in the equity markets, they're going to hide in the energy markets, right? We've seen a huge inflow of capital into energy equities. Um they're going to hide in inflation sensitives even as we talk about a recession, right? So I mean this is just very to me this is this 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 is exactly what I'm talking about. Um that you have a a discretionary crew that is filled with really bright people, many of whom are much smarter than anyone else on this call, right? They're, they're, they, they, they have the intelligence not to distract themselves with this stuff. Um, but they, you know, they're playing a game that, that they think is the same game from 20 years ago um, and getting themselves trapped in positioning, right? So things blow up like they did in the past couple of days. Yeah, Mike, um, can I just ask you, um, Shrub mentioned the Tesla um, deal that, that got pulled. Yep. There was another one um, you know, affirm the buy now, pay later, or buy now, never pay because we go bust. Um, so they pulled a deal, and there that's a much more leverage. That's a, yeah, I, I so uh, yeah. Could, could, you, could you explain what happened to people in the room and why that may or may not be significant? Well, so all of these companies um, that we're talking about, and, and the you know the ABS line of credit for Tesla is effectively a, a is, is you know that's an asset-backed security. It's effectively Tesla leased vehicles or Tesla loans 
to finance the purchases of vehicles, right? Um, it, it just means it makes it harder for them to finance customer pur- purchases. It makes it harder for them to lease out vehicles, et cetera, if they have to pull those lines of credit. But Tesla does have cash. They do have cash on the balance sheet. They could theoretically use it for that. But they tend to want to free that up. Um, that's much less true for a lot of other types of consumer financing like you're referring to, right? So the lend-to-own business constantly requires you selling off, repackaging and selling off the loans that you've already made so that you can make the next next batch of loans. And perversely, we often see this, that the next batch of loans includes a sizable fraction of Ponzi-like dynamics where you're refinancing the prior loans um, and showing that as significant cash flow, right? So it looks like a positive waterfall, but it's really just a refinancing scheme. Um, that to me is like one of the most important things that's actually going on there. I would completely agree with that. I just think it, like Tesla is the exception there. Does it really matter for Apple? Does it, you know, like where everyone wants to focus is on like the super high end, the stuff that they think is, you know, the largest companies. I'd be much more focused on the private debt markets. I'd be much more focused on, um, the lower quality names, et cetera, that, it may not have the same eye-popping valuations, but you know what? When you go to zero, you lose 100% regardless. Hey, Michael, I just wanted a quick follow-up. Um, it, back in the corner of the room where we were talking about recession, um, hard landing, soft landing, and, and you know the price of equities you know, really falling apart potentially would generally comes with, in, you know, with the recession of some kind. Is it possible that we don't go into a recession, but we just go through a period, an extended period of multiple contraction and get kind of to the same place just in a long drawn out manner versus a kind of big, quick, you know, sort of, you know, surprise type thing? Well, to, to be really clear, like that's basically what happened in 2000, right? There was no recession in small cap value. There was no market decline in small cap value. My funds as long only were up dramatically from March of 2000 all the way through basically the summer of, um, you know, really 2002 um, with a, you know, a brief downtrip in, in 2001. Um, you know, the, the recession is what ended up hitting everybody and that didn't come until the after effects of 9-11, which was kind of a mini version of this, hey, let's shut things down for a couple of days as everybody tapes up their house and worries about anthrax. Um, you know, so I just would, uh, anything is possible. Um, we don't yet have the signals that say recession is here. I think it's kind of, you know, 12 to 15 months out. But as long as the underlying structure of employment increasingly takes the form of that means money flows into um, target date funds and therefore into index funds and therefore into equity markets, you know, as Shrub was highlighting, the flows are really strong right now that they've been moved around. And what we're capturing in part of that, you know, we're, we're not seeing the reallocation of the discretionary managers. Right. So just. Very quickly, you know, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of um, $60 trillion worth of managed assets on a global basis Um, in equity markets. The U.S. represents about 30 of that trillion. 
um, of that 30 trillion, let's just make our lives simple and say that, you know, 15% or 50% of that 30 trillion is actively managed, 50% of it is passively managed. And, you know, if the active managers decide that they're going to raise 5% cash, that's a lot of selling um, that doesn't necessarily show up as a outflow because it's happening inside the fund. Right. Right. right, So it's not being calculated in that way. Thanks, Michael. George, got a couple more speakers in here before you leave. So I know you're. So I want to do uh, Deerpoint, Alan, Tommy Thornton, and Emma in that order. So Deerpoint, the floor is yours. What's up, my friend? Hey, thank you, uh, George. Uh, hi, Michael. So, um, Michael, I think you kind of touched on it, and I was kind of in and out there for a second, but um, it, it was going back to you know, I, I guess you were touching on debt associated with um, you know. Um, interest expense that, um, you know, companies have taken on. But kind of what I wanted to ask is, you know, if there is any, like, let's say just complete further deterioration in in corporate credit quality, what would be kind of the the impact of that um, on, like, not just zombie companies, but even, let's say, um, companies that are we would consider, you know, to have relatively strong balance sheets. I mean, like what would be kind of the effect on maybe, let's say, you know, net profits? Um, Well, I mean, that's just a really hard one, right? Because there are some scenarios in which you could perceive that as a positive and some in which you can perceive it as a negative. I I would broadly say that, um, and George kind of alluded to this before, there's a lot of super high quality companies. Let's just use Amazon for an example with AWS. Um, they derive a sizable fraction of their business from super low quality companies that are, um, instead of buying the servers and the infrastructure from Cisco that would have been purchased where this 1999-2000 as they set up a web-related business, today is sitting in the form of spending on AWS or Azure or Google's uh, services offering, et cetera. Um, so I just think there's an awful lot of that, right? And that's why I, I just emphasize the point that somewhere around 20% are zombie. Um, if those start to fail, like that's, the, you know, they're not just 20% by number. They're probably close to 20%, if not even more, by number of employees and those employees spend, et cetera. So like, there's just no way to escape the connected nature of an economy. An economy by definition is people doing favors for other people, right? And, you know, low quality people pay high quality people service fees all the time. Um, so their income does deteriorate. It just doesn't deteriorate on a relative basis. Right. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for that to your point. So Alan is next and then Tommy Thornton and then Emma. Alan, good to hear from you. What's up, my friend? Alan? Am I on now? We can hear you. Go for it, Alan. By the way, okay. is this my friend, Alan, as well? Is this the same Alan from New Jersey? Or is this a different Alan? This is Alan from Las Vegas. Formerly from uh, New York. So I New York. Okay. All right. Well, we don't know each other then, but it's a pleasure to meet you. Same here. Um, so about a year ago in February, um, a model that I look at and my own um, thesis of a bus cycle um, being imminent and I felt very strongly about it and I was short the market and the market just kept going higher and I kept looking for I'm uh, doing due diligence is like what's why is this market going up why am I wrong and the more due diligence I did the more it reconfirmed my opinions 
until one day, seven months later, I ran into you. And I'm listening to you talk about passive money flows and the four and a half to one leverage that passive money flows have over uh, managed money. And you were also saying that in the past 10 years, we went from one and a half percent passive flows to um, 50 percent passive flows. And you also, in another interview, described the effect that these passive flows have on the market caps of the individual stocks that are at the, the bigger stocks in, let's say, the S&P 500, and that it becomes a um, feedback loop that the more money that, that's put into these um, passive funds, the greater the market cap, the greater the demand and you even explained how it exacerbated the value of Apple. There's a question in here. Yep. So, so yeah, yeah, so, Al, yeah. I'm saying this is a friend. Al's a good friend. Al, if I didn't know any better, it sounds like you're the promo setup sh- guy shilling for Michael. But go ahead. <laughs> so I appreciate no, 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 everything. No. It, it was. It was. It was. It was when I when when he, when I understood what the market structure was, it completely made me understand why I'm losing money on my short position. But my instincts had told me that something's uh, something's wrong so my my question to you is that the leading factor in the extreme um, appreciation in market values last year was passive money flows more money flowed into equities and passive equities with a four and a half to one leverage than in the past 20 years combined so my question to you is you keep saying that there's still more money flows but would it like if doesn't a, a a bigger balloon need a lot more air? Like just, I mean, let's say let's say the money flows are lesser than they were last year. Does that not impact prices to be lower? So um, there's a so so first of all, thank you. I'm glad that I was that, that the insights that I provided have been helpful. Um, I'm sorry that you were losing money on it. Um, but I would actually just highlight that your system is correct, right? A discretionary bear market did begin in February of 2021. And if I look at the Kathy Woods or other type portfolios, they began to significant international, et cetera. They began to significantly underperform and turn negative at that point because they are much less affected by the dynamics that you hear me talk about, right? So the S&P continues to drift higher. The NASDAQ continues to drift higher into November. Um, you know, what you're seeing there is the impact of those largest stocks because it really doesn't, you know, it matters a lot what happens to DocuSign to Kathy Wood's portfolio, but it doesn't matter anything at all to the S&P 500. Um, so I just highlight that, like, don't abandon your system because it gave you the right answer. You just needed to make sure that you didn't try to be a hero and do it against the S&P 500. Um, that's what I, that's what I try to do it against. Yeah, that's this is exactly why you hear me talk so much about this dynamic, because it's just completely, you know, it's completely messed up. Um, The second is, is imagine that there's two different types of um, two buttons that you can press in terms of flows. So one flow is um, from a discretionary manager and the other flow is from a passive manager. Um, If you press the button, the dollar coming in from the passive manager um, my estimate is, is that that inflow is give or take eight to nine times more powerful than the flow coming from the discretionary manager. And the easiest way to think about that is the discretionary manager could use that inflow to hold cash. I don't Absolutely. have to buy something. 
right? Whereas the passive manager has to buy something and they have to buy something in proportion to its market cap. And there's a phenomenal academic paper that came out in 2021 um, uh, uh, by, oh God, I'm going to blank on his name, Bouchard, I believe. Yeah, my, my, um, Michael, if you can't remember the name, could you tweet it out later? I think everyone would like to see it. Yeah, I, I've, I've mentioned it a hundred times. But, um, yeah. So th this, is a, this is a rethinking of, of 2020 academic paper by uh, Gabay and Koijin called the Inelastic Market Hypothesis. Bouchard does a microstructure analysis of, of that type of dynamic um, and highlights that one of the key issues is, is that liquidity doesn't scale with market cap. It scales with volume and volatility. Um, and so you actually end up getting these sort of perverse dynamics that we're talking about. Um, we're continuing to see inflows in those much more powerful passive funds, right? Um, so when you see that net number, understand that's active outflows, right? Which I give a multiplier of roughly two mm -hmm. and passive inflows where I give a multiplier somewhere around 17, 18, Right. Um, so I see the flows as being much stronger than people think. What's happening inside the market mm. with volatility targeting funds selling down, with hedge funds selling down, reallocating to an underweight in, in um, technology versus energy, et cetera. Those are the much bigger flows and we just don't see them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're happening inside funds as compared to um, an exogenous flow. And it's in the tends to be in the private sector in the form of hedge funds or institutional behavior as compared to the retail flows that are easily tracked. Um, and that's one of the reasons I emphasize to people, like it's not enough just to look at the flows. You have to have some sense of how people are reallocating internally. Yeah. yeah. So, so Michael, if you game, if you handicap this, cause you've been around a long while as I have, and you just think of it from a game theory perspective as a uh, Helene Meisler uh, says, I think she got it from Justin Mamis. Sentiment follows price. Yep. Everyone's a trend follower. So you can either have a cataclysmic off with their heads type of decline, but if the market went down or really uh, declined sharply a short period of time, my guess is people just buy it. Or, or what seems to be more likely, and I want, I want you to speak to the concept of time. You know, one thing, we really haven't had a proper bear market for all kinds of reasons, but Every decline we've had, it's been short and, and sharp, and you know you're supposed to BTFD, you know, by the by the you know what dip. And a proper bear market involves, or historical bear mar mar bear markets of the past anyway, usually involve the element of time, not just price. And it's very important because of the way it influences investors' expectation and psychology. And I can remember, I think we talked about in this room the other day, a few weeks ago, when a Walter Deemer came in, uh, retired Putnam technician. And he spoke about how in the 70s, you come to work and you kind of expected the market to go down every day. It's just this grinding, emotionally debilitating type of uh, thing where we haven't seen that. And so coming back to how that informs, you had to envision what a bear market might look like. Maybe it's a bear market in time and not price. Maybe it'll only be, you know, we go a few years, the market doesn't really do a whole lot. It's going gonna, it's gonna to frustrate Alan and myself because it doesn't go down the way we want it to. But the flip side is it, does, it loses its mojo and it, go, it, go, it goes sideways quickly. And maybe in real terms, it's actually going down. And maybe, just maybe a few years from now, people start to allocate. So, well, you know what? 
maybe because oh, people always do these forecast allocations are backward looking. And maybe then and only then do they turn the spigots off a little bit or a little bit more less hot water, more cold water. Maybe they put money in volatility funds or God knows what. So how do you think about the most not not what's possible, but the most plausible way that this autopilot uh, liquidity pump could get turned off? And how does it inform your view of what the market might look look look, look, look the returns might look like going forward? So I, I use that analogy. First of all, um, thank you for that. And, and I want to emphasize that you've asked me for a crystal ball and um, nobody has one. Right. So this is a hypothesis. Um, you, you've heard me describe I, earlier. I referred to, you know, kind of the bird's eye view or the satellite view of swimmers in a um, river that has a reasonably strong current. Right. And if you're looking down, you're going to see some people look like they're really fast because they're swimming with the current. You're going to see some people who look like they're really slow because they're swimming against it. And some people who look like they're going diagonally because they're trying to swim to the side. Right. What I think we just saw and what I think you're seeing in the markets is basically people swimming to the side. Right. They're like, oh, okay, we've got to figure it out. It's all about being long uranium and energy and inflationary names, and we need to get out of the long duration technology stuff because, um, you know, that clearly is stupid. Um, and, and I can't believe we got fooled again. And, and we're going to a world where bits matter um, in material forms, so atoms matter as compared to, you know, IP. Um, just visually look at what's happened in the market and imagine that swimming to the side with the current and you get almost exactly what we've seen. The problem is, is once they've, the discretionary managers have made those moves, the underlying structure is they get fired because their investors are older, their investors aren't trained to hodl in the same framework, um, and they're the weak hands in the game. And so that gets unwound going back the opposite direction as long as the underlying flows continue to be passive. Um, and as long as those flows are positive, there's this positive drift type dynamic. That's what scares me is that um, it feels like the pros have gotten themselves significantly off sides unless we have a recession, right? And it has to happen sooner rather than later because those inflows that Shrub was referring to, if those are then met by hedge funds having to reallocate to Apple or reallocate to Microsoft, man, this thing could go crazy in the opposite direction. Michael, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just kind of, <laughs> it's, it's funny listening to you talk because I have running through my mind, you know, scenarios comparing to the past where, you know, instead of being like on a gold standard or whatever, you know, monetary standard, it's almost like we're on a, a NASDAQ standard. I mean, I, 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 I bastardized a line from you know, years ago. I can't remember which Fed chairman said it. It wasn't Arthur Burns. It was somebody. You, you'll probably know. And the line was something like, this, this is when we were in the great manufacturing era, going back 60 years ago or thereabouts. You know, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Yep. Now I like to say what's good for Goldman Sachs is good to the, for the country. I.e., we've over-financialized the economy so well, it, so, to such a great extent, that it's almost like the whole system is set up to Again, again, you know, back in the day, remember early in your career, we'd look at the money supply numbers or the inflation numbers or, 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 or okay, or, 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 or the bond market vigilantes. Now it's almost like we're on a NASDAQ standard. I mean, how crazy is that thought? 
I, I don't think it's that crazy because if you if you look at a significant fraction of the consumer lending, particularly at the high end, it's in the form of securities based lending, right? It's Elon Musk using the collateral of his shares to obtain his spending money, right? By borrowing. Um, you know, there's a fantastic piece, and and you may have heard me refer to this, and and. I apologize if it, if it feels like it's coming out of the blue, but there's, you know, there's what's called a region of information sensitivity on debt. And, you know, you see this all the time. Anyone who's been a professional money manager and hung out with investment grade credit borrowers uh, or lenders, right? So guys who are buying investment grade bonds, they don't really need to know anything about the company. They actually don't care, Right. Because what they're doing is, is they're buying very over collateralized pieces of the capital structure. And you get this crazy mad scramble when things start to go wrong. where all of a sudden they're like, well, wait, wait a second. What does this company do again? Like, how, how did this impact the company? I don't understand it. Right. Um, Mike, I have to interrupt you. You remind me. I'm sure you saw the clip. I'm sure everybody in this room saw the clip. You remind me of that uh, fellow last fall. I think it's yeah, upstart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, but Mike, why, why don't you just tell the story for the room? It's one of the better ones. Yeah, I, I didn't see this live. I saw the replay of it. But you know, there was a guy who went on CNBC and was talking about all the stocks that he liked, and among them was this one called Upstart. And the host said, "You know, so what do they do?" He's like, "Oh, oh, what do they do? What, what's? Uh, I'm sorry, we've got a bad connection. I couldn't hear you. What did you say?" <laughs> you know, was, um, you know, that, that to to your point on the Nasdaq standard, right? Um, that's almost what this is like. You are creating money by giving people an asset that they could then borrow against. And now you've started to take that away, right? So this is, again, the monetary tightness that's developing across various other markets. And with, you know, a high fraction of the market down, you know, 40, 50%, certainly high relative to other historic corrections of this magnitude, um, a lot of people have you know, had margin calls and had to come up with extra cash and everything else right yeah. um the other thing that i would just highlight is is that there is you know we don't often talk about it in these terms but one of the characteristics of the 1999-2000 cycle was the incredible number of ipos that were coming out and when an ipo comes out and issues five percent of the shares right you don't actually need that much money to go in to create a large asset value so you know we we you know, issue at a billion dollar valuation. Let's return back to, you know, the semi-realistic numbers of 1999, 2000. I issue 5% of the shares. That means I only need to come up with $50 million in actual cash that gets raised to create a billion dollar asset. And against that billion dollar asset, I can then withdraw. Obviously it depends on the, on the, the lending terms, but I could withdraw up to $500 million of cash in the form of securities lending. Right. So the Soft bank strategy that they do before they go public. That's exactly whoever tossed that in. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Okay. So hold hold on, hold on, guys, hold on. With that, I was gonna just Emma, hold one second. I was gonna say because I think we're getting to the end of that thread. I was gonna Emma was gonna be our next speaker, so we're gonna do Emma and then Tom Thornton and then uh, Motorhead. Emma, nice to meet you. And and then then after that, I apologize. I'm gonna hop off. Yeah. Fine, Michael. You've been more than generous with your time. So. So Emma uh, Thornton, Motorhead, uh, Michael said he'd do a 45 minutes to an hour, coming up in an hour and 20 minutes. So let's try to keep it tight. We can have a food fight amongst ourselves once he leaves. But Emma, welcome. What's up, man? Thanks. Dear my dear friend, what's up? Thanks. Sure. Um, Mike, I'll be quick on this. Um, so am I getting it right that your, your thoughts right now? 
because of you know some discretionary managers could be moving more defensive maybe to put to putting five ten percent into cash that that could cause a you know a fallout in the like you know cause the index flows to go the other way and so you don't want to be like all like i would think this people are still getting paid and putting money in their 401ks like like crazy so why not just invest in the top market cap stocks in the S&P 500. Yeah, I, I, I think Emma, I think he's been, he's been, I don't know if you've heard him speak before, but I'll make it easy for Michael. He can rest because he's been talking so much. I think Michael's been a big proponent. The indexes are going to continue to do well for exactly the reasons you're saying. So I think that's the answer to the question, or were you asking a slightly different question? Because he, he's been cautioning me against being too bearish because he says, George, watch out for the passive flow. So is that basically your question? Uh, I couldn't quite hear exactly what you said, but I think so. Yeah, okay. so, so so Mike, Mike, you know, Michael, maybe you heard the question. Maybe you want to answer yep. it quickly. I, 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 I did hear it, and, and and actually, I would flip that on its head, right? So, like the underlying economic conditions make me extremely cautious, but the concern that I have is is that everybody has gotten everybody with discretion has gotten very bearish very fast. Um, they have raised cash. They have reduced their gross exposures, meaning that they have um, covered both shorts and longs. And the problem is that those shares now sit in the hands of the equivalent of crypto's hodlers, the vanguards and BlackRocks, right? They've transitioned to very strong hands that are not going to sell if prices move higher. Uh Um, And so, you know, the risk to me is a totally, for exactly the reasons you said, people are still employed, they're still getting their paychecks, that money is flowing into target date funds. The risks are actually this thing gets melted up Mm-hmm. Um, sending again exactly the wrong signal to the central bank, you know, who says, "Oh, look how smart we were. We dismissed the the potential growth concerns. The market is clearly rallying to reflect the fact that we got our forecast right. So Perfect. let's proceed to continue to tighten up." Gotcha. Right. Yeah, I agree with that, and I just want to make sure. That I yeah, no, you, you got. It. And by the way, one one Carl I'd add that Michael will think about. I find it really interesting. And Mike, maybe you want to speak to this. If you look at the action of the bond market. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Even even before we had this sort of reprieve, I mean, the lowest tenure could get down was like one eight or something like that. And now I've gone on a new cycle high in the world you're talking about. I mean, I think yields go up and to the right quite significantly. Thoughts? Um, so I'm I'm very mixed on that. I think what we're seeing, and th- this is um, this is kind of the stochastic dynamic, right? So this feels very much like the fourth quarter of 2018, where oil prices have continued to move significantly higher. There's a component of derivative squeezes that are associated with that in the same way that there are with the nickel market. People have gotten themselves very excited about the idea of rates moving dramatically higher. If you remember that discussion at that time, it was, you know, if rates break 3%, then the bond bull market is over and it's off to the races. Um, you know, I, I would just broadly. Oh, hold on one second. Sorry about that, guys. Had to call my dog. Um, the. Um, Let's see. Uh, where was I on that last comment? You, you were talking know. about you were cautioning about the idea that uh, rates bought. Oh, okay. Bought yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 so here's the core of the issue, right? If the Fed is going to hike interest rates, 
you are it is very hard for the belly right it's the seven to ten years sort of stuff um to not move higher on those hikes right because the fed is indicating that the non-arbitrage condition of effectively uh rates a year from now you know have to consider that we've moved down a binomial tree where the fed has chosen to hike right so the optionality pushes it in that direction um but that sort of forcing higher occurs against a, an increasingly flattening curve, right? So, you know, the tens will rise five basis points, the twos will rise 25 basis points. Um, and that pushes you into the inversion and, you know, the negative implications of everything that we've talked about. Um, but I, I just don't see the scenario in which a sizable fraction of the economy can handle significantly higher risk-free rates. Right. right. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I, I get it. All right. You, 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 you answer that. I'm trying to get you out of here because you've been too busy with your too generous your time. Two last questions for you. I'm going to cut you off. So you can get the next question and get out of here. We're going to do Motorhead and then Mr. Thornton. Motorhead, you got a question for Michael? Motorhead, are you there? Hello. All right. Not there. Mr. Thornton, are you there, Tommy? Hey, how are you guys? Good to see you, Tommy. What's your question for Michael? Okay, Michael, um, every time I get a chance to listen to you, I just squeeze my head, is get everything out of the sponge and just absorb everything you say. It's just fascinating and uh, so concise, and uh, thank you for your time. I, um, I, I really um, am very, very grateful. Uh, I just have a few things. I actually have three things, and you can answer if you want uh, all of them or one of them. Uh, one, you know, I think that the um, you've been spot on, and I think the 2021 inflows, which I, I like to call future sellers, uh, they just haven't been there yet. And I think that if we had made new lows, let's say uh, under 4,000 SPX, and there was something real ugly scary, and maybe a little longer prolonged downturn, uh, because you know one of the things that um, the 2008 pullback actually lasted longer than people really wanted. And the, I mean, what I'm saying that is, it got into you know we had the Lehman experience uh, in September, and then the uh, February and March puke really got the maybe I could equate now those future sellers, uh, those buyers, uh, the big inflows, that's when they puked. And that was the final low. So I kind of think that we're at the um, stage where people haven't really given up. They're still in that let's hold things mode. And then the other thing, um, and you're much more qualified. You've talked a lot about zombie companies. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of debt since 2015, uh, be raised without covenants. We've had this covenant-free world. And I think that that, well, you could probably tell me better, that's created a much deeper problem because when you have covenants, you start, you know, companies, they can't hide uh, some of the problems. So I think it's going to be a lot deeper. And when things blow, they're going to blow quickly. Um, and, I'm, and I don't think we're there yet. Then the last thing, and a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people really focused on this, but um, the yen, 
weakened uh, considerably this week. And Kuroda and the Bank of Japan were basically stepping out, I'd say brazenly saying, hey, we're, we're not following what other central banks are doing. We're not raising rates. And we're totally cool. Not those words. <laughs> we're fine with uh, letting the yen uh, weaken. And that's in our best interest. So it just seemed like those three things to me are on my mind while I hear you and, you know, I want to just pick your brain. And I will see you in two weeks at the Real Vision event in Del Mar. Very, very excited uh, to uh, hear you speak and uh, we can uh, grab a drink. I'm looking forward to that as well, Tommy. Thank you very much for the comments. Um, so, so, Michael, Michael, um, you, 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 I can't thank you enough. You, you really have done – everyone put a like or whatever up. Everyone follow Michael. Michael, it's always a pleasure. We always learn so much from you. Um, just just wonderful, um, and I hope you come back again. You're doing a real service. We're all doing this together to try to help everybody, and uh, just fantastic. So kudos to you, Michael. Well, th- thank you. Are you kicking me off, or am I answering Tommy's questions? No, no, no I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm not kicking you off. I, I, thought, <laughs> I was – all right, so I'll tell you what, Michael, you, you answer because – by the way, I'm going to tease my friend Tommy. He he went on such a rant. I I, I kind of I wasn't sure there was a question. I thought it was a speech. So no, yeah, yeah, he had he had three full questions in there, all of which I thought were great. Um, no, I know he said there were going to be questions, but then I I, I kind of got lost in text. So Michael, you respond however you want to Tommy, and then you can excuse yourself when you want to leave. I'm not throwing anybody out. Go ahead. Okay. Um. So so first of all, thank you, Tommy. Um. And uh, it's very kind of you to say something coming from a fellow professional. It's always nice. Um, in terms of, um, let, me, let me almost work them in reverse order. Um, so the, the, the first thing I guess that I would say is um, if I think about the yen, I have been extremely concerned about the yen being able to maintain its bid for safety for an extended period of time. Um, historically, the yen has benefited in risk-off scenarios because Japanese have pulled their investment from abroad where they were able to earn higher returns and um, put it into Japan, and that creates positive buying pressure on the yen in a risk-off event and creates a risk-off characteristic. This time around, we saw the exact opposite, and I would broadly suggest that it, there's actually a much more fundamental deterioration around Japan, where um, it is very clear that both Japan and Germany are going to have to significantly ramp up their government expenditures, particularly in the form of military. Um, some of that will take take the form of economic stimulus. Some of that will take the form of paying for um, diesel and paying for ships and paying for, you know, Korean shipbuilders to do stuff that they otherwise might not want to be doing. So I think there's a very real risk that the supply of yen on the global market is increasing. And at the same time, um, particularly because of various forms of support and also just the general aging of the population, the Japanese have more, um, and, and deterioration of investment opportunities in China where they had made the majority of them. Um, Japan has less money to bring back or that they are capable of bringing back, right? The money that is trapped in places like China, I think we're going to discover is very similar to money that was invested in Russia and you're never going to see it again. 
Um, so I think there's a very real risk that the yen has lost its risk-off protection characteristics. Um, let's see. The, uh, the second question, if I remember correctly, can you just remind me of it very quickly, Tommy? Just uh, about the covenant-free. Oh, the covenant-free, yes. Okay, so this, this ultimately, I, I, first of all, I completely agree with you. Um, I think this is one of the ways that you camouflage problems. Um, and it actually speaks to the underlying dynamics of passive in a way that uh, this is where I might overlap with people who are more critical of passive from a, a governance standpoint. Everybody focuses on the governance dynamics of is, you know, Larry Fink and his crew going to suddenly start voting ESG. But that's actually far less important to me than the failure to exercise fiduciary governance in the form of um, passive vehicles being willing to buy covenant light structures. And I think this is something that people really underappreciate. Um, as fast as passive is growing in equity, with the exception of the recent flows, it has been growing even faster in fixed income, in part that's because the fixed income space has been growing. Um, and Vanguard does not care what the covenants are. Right? They do not care. And so if they do not care, if the largest marginal buyer does not care, guess what's going to happen to the quality of debt covenants? They're going to fall and disappear. And you're going to lose that change of control feature that I referred to earlier as being the unique characteristic of credit that makes it a very valuable component of the capital structure. And so I, I completely agree and perversely would link it back to passive and the area of corporate governance that nobody is paying attention to passives role there. They're all focused on the equity and the ESG type nonsense. Far more important is this type of impact. Um, and then your first question, I'm sorry. This is a sign that I'm getting old and my dog. No, 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 no. My, my, Michael, it's also a sign. You're in, all right, Tommy, go ahead. Go ahead, Tommy. Just about the, um, you know, the large amount of inflows that we saw in 2021. Yeah. Um, so, so where right, do you so, see them? Where do you yeah, see so, that ending or going? So, out? Yeah. So, so this is one of the things. Also, remember, I referred to the endogenous versus exogenous flows. So, in an event like 2020, where money came out very rapidly, um, as investors look at discretionary investors, right? So, so guys like me or guys like um, George look to put money to work very quickly. In many situations, even the professional investors are turning to ETFs. Right. And that shows up as it, it, it's a double counting of flows. Right. So I used to manage money for Canyon Partners. If Canyon Partners buys SPY or Canyon Partners buys XLE or for that matter, Simplify, right, chooses within one of our products to buy HYG, that is going to show up as a flow. And if it's money that flows into my fund and then flows into an allocation to HYG, that shows up as 2x flows. So one, I don't actually think that 2020 was nearly the level of flows that everybody thinks. I think it was a, a big chunk of it was endogenous reallocation with um, people inside the industry allocating to things like ETFs. So I think you just got to be a little bit careful in terms of that. Um, the second is in terms of where does this stop? I just don't like it stops when a recession occurs and people get laid off and they no longer are participating in 401k programs. Right. Or it hits the structural disinvestment point where there's significantly more money trying to come out in the retirement flows. But again, I just want to emphasize the perverse characteristic of the retirement structures that we have today 
you have very few people on a relative basis in things like defined benefit plans where it's effectively an evergreen component. You have a fairly high number of people who are in things like 401ks or IRAs. Those are about 17 and a half to $18 trillion in assets now, uh, much bigger than the give or take two and a half to 3 trillion that are in defined benefit plans. Um, and then you have all the endowment space and everything else. Um, insurance industry, et cetera. The, the weird dynamic that's happening is the, disc, the, the money that is in people's 401ks or IRAs as they approach retirement tends to be in active mutual funds, right? So it, the, the representation of active management simply by historical accident and people not changing their allocations, et cetera, you know, anyone who's managed money knows that your best client is the one who never calls you up and asks you a question, Right. And, and many of your best clients are actually dead people who fail to have their estates redeemed. Um, you know, so, so that money is very, very slow to move. But when it moves and it moves out of a tax-deferred account like a 401k or an IRA, it almost inevitably then gets invested into a passive ETF, right? Um, all the model portfolios, et cetera, are increasingly moving that way. So it's just we've created this death trap effectively for active discretionary allocation of capital, which is the great irony because that's what we're all supposed to be doing. We're all supposed to be trying to facilitate the um, allocation of capital across society by changing the cost of capital for different companies. And we've just abrogated that completely. The regulatory framework sets this thing in place. And I don't know how it reverses short of an actual crisis. I, I wish that was not my answer. Like I, there's so many ways George knows this. I find what I am saying to you guys so offensive, but I don't see any alternative. I think it's true, but offensive. Michael, you know what that reminds me of? Remember my therapist years ago told me whenever he had, was going to have a difficult conversation with somebody, he'd create a safe space by saying, okay, you're my friend. You've been my friend. You are my friend. You'll be my friend. But I just want to let you know this conversation is going to suck. Yeah. So that's kind of the way I feel. I mean, I hear you, man. You're a good friend. You, you speak truth. So last question, I'm going to let you go. Absolute last question. I wasn't going to ask it, but you just you just tickled my fancy on something. As I hear you talk about the degradation of credit, and we were talking earlier about the degradation of the quality of equities, does that inform your opinion at all about gold? Do you have any thought on gold? Oh, boy. Um, so... I still think that Jim Grant has the best expression of gold, which is the price of gold is one over N where N is faith in central bankers. Um, and so the lower N goes, the higher the price of gold goes. Um, it, it is, it's in, in my analysis, it's probably the most deeply misunderstood asset that exists out there. And, it, that has only been further complicated by the introduction of discussions around digital gold, et cetera. Right. Um, so I, I actually believe that gold is a barbarous relic, right? That the reason it worked, the reason we cared about it was that it had the particular characteristics of an element on the periodic table that was non-toxic, durable, malleable enough that it could be used in primitive coinage. Um, so that we could very quickly figure out what the denominations were. Um, it's non-corrosive, so if you leave it sitting in a vault, it doesn't change due to oxidation, etc. Um, all, all of those things made it uniquely suitable for historical coinage, and its price 
I actually just did a Real Vision segment with Warren Moser on this. Its price was actually set by the government's willingness to buy it at a fixed price. It wasn't that the value of gold supported the currency. It's that governments around the world agreed that they would accept it in lieu of their currency at a fixed price. Um, and again, this is incredibly offensive to many people who you know, operate from the Austrian school and say that, you know, gold has some unique attribute that makes it uniquely valuable because it's shiny or whatever. That's just another way of saying that it, it doesn't oxidize. Um, I, I do think that what is underway is a bifurcation of the global monetary system back towards a Bet Bretton Woods type framework um, where people have, have broadly misunderstood the Bretton Woods framework, right? It wasn't that it made the dollar the global reserve currency. It's that it split the world in half with the Soviets having a ruble standard and the U.S. having a dollar standard. And if you happen to live in a ruble-denominated regime, you would never have seen a dollar in your life until, give or take, 1989. Um, a little bit earlier than that with Perestroika and Glasnost. Um it feels like that's the direction that we're going. And for the upstart um, alternate block, if they choose to proceed down that path, and by this I would obviously be referring to a wand-denominated block, and to a lesser extent you can see the euro try to play for this, although I'm, I'm skeptical, um, they're going to want to show some element of collateral, and that likely means that you're going to see purchasing of gold. Um, I, again, I think is this is... It's a rear guard action. Um, I think, you know, at some point in the future, we'll all look back and, and say, you know, isn't that quaint? Um, but it's nothing. It's just like bear markets. They don't advance in straight lines. Right. So this does feel like a counter trend to me. Michael, now I'm going to allow, I'm not going to throw you out. Are you excusing yourself now? Because I already committed. I, I, I'm going to drop down and listen for a little bit. I, right. I, I truly do enjoy listening, but I do have other things I got to get I got, I got a big round of applause there for, for Michael. Thank no no applause, but back. thank you. Awesome. I appreciate thank it, guys. You. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Wow. Just wow. I mean, we had Michael Belkin on uh, the other day on Thursday, and now we get Michael Green. I mean, wow. People ask me why I do these rooms. I learn. So this is just awesome. And Michael Green's been just so generous with his time. I mean, just wow. And I thank all of you for making this happen because if you weren't here, he wouldn't be here. So this is a great group effort. Let's move on. So we're going to do uh, Andrew followed by KFAB. Andrew, good to see you. What's up, my friend? Oh, hey, George. Thanks for taking my question. Just wanted to ask you guys what what trading uh, period this felt most like to you, uh, to you in terms of the situation? I know it's a new situation. And then your, your comfortability with, the, with this uh, stress test for banking, especially for European banks. But um, for me, it, it may feel a little bit like 2002, a little bit shortly after the Iraqi war and how we had like a death by a thousand cuts situation after that for the trading environment. But before my time, maybe in 87 for the, for the hedging, situation uh before the fallout and the rebound um just wanted to see what your take was yeah, on the I'm happy to take test. that. i'm yep. happy to take that but you know what there are others in the room that also been at a long time so i'm going to defer to them if they want to take a shot at it so alan if you want to answer that or thomas if you want to answer that otherwise i'll answer it alan levinson do you want to take a shot at that i don't know if alan's listening tommy do you want to take a shot at that oh, alan, no because I, I i don't see a correlation to any period you, you think yeah. it's very? You think it's very different, Alan? 
I think it's more of what Michael Green said that I keep seeing in the tape that this is a different era with this passive money and this last move up um, is very typical of the move that we saw in 2021. It's a, you see no volume on the upside because as he's saying, the discretionary fund manager has already sold and it's going up and there's no one who's, uh, who, who's selling into these rallies. So it's much like what Michael Green says. Um, it kind of is discouraging because it makes me less confident in being uh, short the stocks I'm short. Yeah, but, but, but Alan, a couple things. Doesn't that make you think that, I mean, to the extent, I don't want to use the term right or wrong. Is, uh, um, that's an arrogant thing for me to say. But to the extent that you're frustrated, the market doesn't go, go down more quickly, or I'm frustrated because of these, these, these index flows. And you may say, well, that's, you know, it's automated. It's not particularly foreign buying. It's, 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 it's price insensitive. Doesn't that suggest, though, that if and when that money decides to get out of Dodge, like look out below? Yes, but um, I, can I just I want to ask one question to Thomas, if I may. It's, it relates to this. So Thomas thinks we're in a five move, five wave Elliott wave move up. And I looked at that Elliott wave move, the Elliott wave move up. And it seems to me like forty four hundred would be a violation of the first wave, which would invalidate a five wave move up because a fourth wave can't move. Because right now we're, we'd be in a third wave. And a fourth wave can't go into the space of a third wave. So that would make if we if we breach 4,400 on the futures, that would make a five wave move up invalid. Is is that correct or incorrect? Actually, um, I hate to say this, but no, incorrect. Um, OK, I, well, I, OK, as much as uh, people, you know, they glossy eyed or people are talking about Elliott Wave. Um, I think the most important thing uh, with Elliott Wave is not necessarily just the uh, Fibonacci retracement levels or any of that, because that gets very subjective. Uh, I use the DeMarc uh, Wave uh, process. It's it's different. It doesn't have just exact Fibonacci levels. It uses um, numbers of days making a closing high or low uh, on various ways. It works well for me. Uh, the pure Elliott Wave people have some issues with it, but the personalities are very important. And on the daily time, and I use waves on, you know, the shorter term periods, like a 60 minute time period. And I use um, it on daily as well. So the thing that I'll, I'll make it really kind of clear here. Oh, by the way, George, I just was, uh, I just walked home from my, um, from my office to my house and some guy in the Jeep says, hey, I've been listening to you on, on George's. Uh, are, you ser- cool. are you serious? I'm kidding. That, in, a, in a Jeep, yeah. That is um, crazy. Next thing you know, you're going to tell me he's going down Greenwich Ave with the radio blaring and everything with you on the speaker. Go on. Yeah, well, here I am, like, you know, in my workout clothes, uh, walking home all horrendous. Uh, anyway, so let me just get back to that. I'll, I'll try and keep it simple. Uh, I think that on the daily time frame, uh, this last move down was wave three. And in wave one, the first wave down, not many people really see the um, situation for what it is that we're moving into a darker period. Uh, we get a bounce in wave two, and everyone on CNBC um, 
you're, you know, what are you buying? What are you buying? And then it fails, makes a lower, a, a lower high. And then we made a lower low wave three. A nice GT3 RS. If anybody's a Porsche fan, just drove by. Um, sorry, I got distracted there. And uh, essentially wave three is when people start to get a little bit more nervous and get on board that uh, we're bearish and we're moving into a bearish place. And then all of a sudden, uh, everybody, like Mike said, uh, became incredibly bearish. Every sentiment poll, everyone uh, was bearish. The short interest data spiked, put buying was very high. Everything in the personality of wave on the downside existed. So we're now getting this wave four bounce. And wave four is a corrective bounce and... People, I mean, first of all, it's not an easy wave to get long uh, because it usually is the shortest of all waves. And then this bounce will end and then we'll break through and make five waves, uh, the fifth wave lower. And that's when my view is when those future sellers that put a lot of money in in 2021 will become uh, sellers. And the other thing is, I'm watching um, intraday on the 60-minute time frame, and that's like a good trading indicator. I'm a trader. I'm, you know, I'm an investor, but I'm also a trader, and I'm, you know, I'm the guy in the foxhole shooting at people uh, by being directed by a general. So, yeah, we're we're moving up into the shorter term period into wave five, and that's when people are going to start to get. Uh, acknowledge it and think, okay, I can get long. And that's generally when things start to get dicey for, uh, for the people that, that, that entered. And you're, you're probably going to start to see this week um, further upside. I I'm guessing um, I'm positioned that way. And I think that you'll start to hear it on the business channels. I don't listen to CNBC, but someone can remind me next week um, what happened. Uh, but I think they're going to start to get long again. They're going to start, you know, showing the their okay. We can it's game on again. So I think that short term up, longer term, uh, we're, we're going to still see a lower low, and that's that's ahead. I, I don't know uh, this wave four will stop, um, but I think it's it's locked in. And my target for wave five, my target on wave one was forty sixty seven, and I talked about it you know, for the last couple, you know, month or two on spaces here with you, George, but, um, 3,900 is my wave five price objective. It's computer oh, generated. No, hold on to this. Wait, 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 wait. So Tommy Thorne, I've known for years. He's money. He's a good friend. I have no commercial association with Thomas. He is proprietor of hedge fund telemetry. He's a must follow. His service is very reasonable. I strongly suspect, and he's going to kill me, but I strongly suspect that if you reach out to him and become a subscriber, he'll just tell him George sent you, he'll treat you well, give you a discount. So I urge everyone to, at a minimum, to follow Tommy. Hopefully, you'll become a subscriber. I freaking hate when he does this. I mean, I mentioned this in the room the other day. You know, I'm going to embarrass him. I remember like it was yesterday, December of 18, he's sick in a London hotel room. And he's, and he's like, I'm going out of my mind. He literally was going out of his mind because he had the flu. But he was also going out of his mind because all his demarc indicators and everything he talks about, there was like just a whole cluster of stuff coalescing saying that eh, this is, this is going to bottom here. When I see this, I get the heebie jeebies. 
And for those of you who weren't in the room, he did it a few days ago on the market. He got it right. So, you know, Thomas, I salute you. I urge everyone to follow you. I, I, I strongly urge people if they're so inclined and it's really reasonable money, become a subscriber of Tommy. All right, George, like, yeah, George, George, can I? Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Stop, 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 stop. Three aces and K-Fan. Three aces. Yeah, George, we have two very special guests here. I, I know. Heard. I'm trying to get to Okay, them. you I'm see him? Okay, you see oh. Darren and, and Motorhead. Yeah, okay, I, I know, I know, I know. K-Fab, is something real quick. Otherwise, I want to get to the other guys. Yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a quick question for Tommy, actually. Tommy, do you have uh, – are, are you seeing kind of daily nine potential setups in the European indices that could correlate with, like, wave four terminating in the U.S.? Uh, the one thing, I, yeah, there's, first of all, the, the nines and thirteens, uh, the nines are, t are typically shorter term in nature and have been pretty good in choppy type of markets like we've had. And yeah, we have seen some, some nines in the European markets. I'm not in front of my screens, but yeah, I, do I, was, remember, I do remember. Yeah, I like, like the CAC and the DAX, I think we were on eight on Friday and we triggered nines, I think on, uh, on Monday. So that would correlate with your timeline on a way forward in the u.s finishing relatively soon i'll i'll do this i'll post um i'll post those tomorrow i'm going to be back in my office tomorrow because i'm in my office tommy tommy that'd be too great. much tommy that'd be great all right let's try to move ahead i just want to get everyone in here as much as possible i mean you guys are i love all you guys it's amazing i've never been you know talk about football games that go too long three four hours i mean you guys can go forever we're in an hour and 50 and we're still going and you know i got plenty of time it's crappy weather outside so we'll keep this room going for a good while so we're going to go to uh motorhead and then followed by darren motorhead um hello i understand uh you've got a couple questions comments reactions what's up on your mind go for it um i'm i'm my 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 account is basically um uh uh pumping bad news on tesla analyzing tesla Oh, wait a second. You're my new best friend now. Hold on. Hold on. Why have I not met you before? Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Actually, oh, you know I, what? I, uh... think, I, I think Motorhead, uh, let me do a brief intro. I've known Motorhead for over five years. He's a, one of the most intelligent auto industry analysts and hedge fund manager. And um, he knows the industry better than anybody I've ever met. And, you know, of course, anybody who knows autos from, from our gray hair school, George, uh, is, of course, short Tesla. So anyhow, Motorhead, sorry to interrupt you there, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a plug. Thank you, Three Aces. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I, I think, so I, I talked to, I cover the global automotive industry. I talked to pretty much the biggest car makers all over the world um, every quarter. Um, and right now, what's going on, you know, I've got Tesla wrong, you know, from since 2016, and I've lost, you know, a lot of my wealth uh, being short um, these days. When I think it's going to go up, I, I I go long. But um, I'm not like a, you know, I hate Tesla so much that I hate money. Um, but the point is that um, one of the clearest signs I was wrong about the fact that it would go bankrupt. Although it, it Musk admitted that it uh, basically was bankrupt back in 2019. Um, but I think the the thing we're looking at right now that's um, most compelling is. Once the chip crisis is over, um, Tesla will see at least uh, 15 to 20% price cuts. Now, one of their big so-called moats is that they don't have any independent dealers. Um, and that saves them the dealer margin, which is roughly 5%.
And this is why Fidelity said that, uh, you know, on top of their own, uh, their other um, areas of expertise, that's why Fidelity went big in on them back in um, early in the 2012s and the 2013s. But um, right now we're in a chip shortage and the chip shortage is severe. And it has a lot to do with COVID. It has a lot to do with the fact that uh, automakers refuse to uh, buy um, higher grade chips the way that uh, the Xboxes and the Playstations do. But once this chip uh, shortage um, normalizes, uh, is, is the beginning of the end for Tesla. And um, they may have volumes going up, um, but if your prices go down 15 to 20%, um, you're going to have losses or you're going to at least have massive profit declines. Now, um, what's happened with Tesla, because they don't have independent dealerships, um, is as follows. They've raised their price on the lowest grade Model 3, Model Y, which makes both of which make up 90% of their global sales volumes. They, in the U.S. at least, have raised them by 27% in the past 12 months. Now... Um, that's $10,000 and $12,000 respectively, respectively for the Model 3 and the Model Y. This is because the U.S. independent dealers for the major OEMs like Toyota, Ford, GM, they've been, um, they've been price gouging. And I've seen receipts from people, pictures of receipts that show like a RAV4 that has a $16,000 markup on it, which they label as chip surcharge. So the, the, uh, the car makers themselves aren't necessary, not necessarily benefiting from these price hikes. It's the dealers. But Tesla was able to follow these dealers and raise their direct sales price as much as the independent dealerships for the legacy automakers have been price gouging. So what happens is once this uh, chip shortage um, normalizes and the goalposts keep moving, unfortunately, um, once it normalizes and the car makers are able to have normal, levity, normal levels of inventory, which is about 60 days of sales, um, Tesla immediately has to drop its sales prices. Plus, you've got all these new... EVs coming to the market. Now, we've been talking about, you know, the competition is going to kill Tesla, and it hasn't yet. But we've got so many more models coming on. And a lot of models were held off in 2021 because there weren't enough chips. So once the chip supply normalizes, it's the end of Tesla. And this could, I mean, to give you an example of how cheap Tesla could get uh, is, you know, right now it's... Uh, trading at a price to book value of about $25. And that would put it, uh, I'm sorry, it's trading, it, it, it would, if it were to trade at a price to book value of one time or less, which is where the average automaker trades at, the, the fair value is about $25. And uh, the stock is now at 900. So I'm just, uh, I'm, I just focus on Tesla because, uh, Everybody thinks uh, they're going to disrupt. Kathy Woods, you know, says they're going to bankrupt uh, the, the legacy car makers. And I just think it's a crock of shit. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to add that to today's conversation, which has been excellent, by the way. Thanks, George. Thank you so much. Um, you and I, I, by the way, I used to be in all aisles once upon a time. I suspect I'm a little bit older than you, but I think it's a crock I, of shit. I, 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 I was a fidelity analyst going back to uh, fidelity auto analyst going back to the early 80s under Peter Lynch. So. 
I made the same uh, error, investment error, as you, although I didn't make any analytical error. What I like to point out to people is um, we all know that, I learned this way back when, Peter Lynch always used to say that you tell me what a company's going to earn, and I'll tell you what the stock price is going to do. When you look at a long-term chart, there's usually a pretty good fit between the sales. Motor, could you mute your, mute your mic, please? Um, hey, hey, George, we're catching every third word, George. Can you hear me now, three aces, or not? Much better. Yeah, right, we okay, just, so let, please sorry, restate so let, what you just said there. Thank you. Yeah, let me restate that. Thank you. So um, there's, a long, there's a long-term correlation between a company's sales, earnings, and stock price. That's what Peter Lynch taught me. And we used to look at long-term chart books, and you could see the earnings line and the stock price line, and they would follow each other. Not every week, not every month, not every quarter, but over the long run, they would. And what's been so frustrating about Tesla is if you go back and you look what they actually made, what their revenues were and what their earnings were, if you go back and look, say, in 2017, what the analytical community was estimating for their earnings in the subsequent years, not just 17 and 18, but a few years forward, you look at what the earnings were, earnings forecasts were and the revenue forecasts were, and you look at what they actually did, it was a disaster. And never in my career, I mean, if I, if I told you, Motorhead, you know this, if I said to you, you know what, XYZ sales and earnings are going to come in 50% below consensus over the next five years, what's stock going to do? I don't think the first thing that comes to mind is go up 30X. But that's what's happened. And to me, Tesla, and we're not going to, by the way, we're not going to allow this room to degenerate into a Tesla bashing session, but Motorhead's my new best friend, so he, he's going to run the room from now on. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> you, 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 you're talking dirty to me. I love, no, because you're speaking truth, right? And so, so great minds think alike. And, you know, listen, I get it wrong all the time. I got a problem being wrong. You do crappy analysis, you deserve to lose money. Fine. But when you're writing the goddamn numbers and the stock goes up 30x and you have no nothing newbie faux gurus who are momentum chasing, Kathy Woods worshiping, upper to the right buying guys, and they're all following memes. And, and this guy, this company's a crooked accounting. He lies. He should be in jail. I mean, it just kind of, I don't know about, there's a question you're about, I'm venting, but it, it kind of like, I just scratched my head. I'm like, I'm like, what type of world do we, do we live in? I mean, this is complete insanity. I mean, I, I wish I never heard of this company. <laughs> and, and I don't, and anyone says to me, well, you were wrong. No, I was not wrong. You were not you. The bulls were totally wrong on the stock. And when they say, well, sorry, on the company. And they say, well, look at, you know, look at the stock price number go up. It's just like the goddamn Bitcoin maxis. This is a function of excess liquidity, okay? This is, you know, stock prices, as someone said earlier or tweeted out earlier, it used to be a rec you know, representation of what a company's worth. No, they've become a thermometer, a barometer for how much money the Fed's pumping into the system. And this charlatan has lied his way to being the richest guy on the face of the planet. He should be in jail, all right? And you got these, no, no I mean, it's amazing, Motorhead, you know this. So with these things a couple of years ago, they polled the investors like, 98% of the public thought the Tesla made money. Go figure. But, you know, as is, 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 is Lord Keynes once said, markets can remain irrational for longer than they can remain silent. So my question to you, Motorhead, is there's never been a question about the fundamentals. We've been 110% right. What we've been wrong on is uh, trying to fully comprehend the extent to which the idiots would drink the Kool-Aid. And so they need to be presented with incontrovertible evidence that it's fucking game over. So I know you're starting to see loss of market share for the first, what gives me hope that truth will prevail. 
is that Tesla's now starting to lose market share rapidly in Europe. You finally see, for all you Tesla bulls out there, these little companies, they ever heard of them? I know I'm getting on my on my high horse. I'm gonna, I, I will not use four-letter words, but I'm getting excited. You're making me hot, Motorhead. Um, you know, these little companies called Volkswagen, Mercedes, BMW. Go online and take a look at the picture of the fucking Mercedes car. Oops, I just swore. I mean, this is, and you look at, at, at the Tesla vehicles on the road, they're so tired. They're so old looking. They look like, like Yugos or something like that. All right. This company is, 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 I mean, th- these other companies, they finally got the bit between their teeth, the scale advantage they have. They forgot more about car manufacturing than Tesla will ever know. I, I just, so my question to you is, now that you listen to me rant, do you think like, like one of the, one of the narrative following guys finally got to get the memo that Tesla has a problem insofar as, they're losing market share, and and and, and it's and and, and and you know they, 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 and that the top line of the company really starts to decelerate. I guess that's my question, Motorhead. Um, I think um, the uh, George, as as you being a former auto analyst yourself, um, I think one of the biggest dangers for Tesla right now is the fact that uh, they have no new model pipeline. When I was a young auto analyst on the sell side. Uh, my first 10 minutes would be to talk about product pipeline. And they're all hush-hush about it, but um, at least you can ask about full model changes where they fully redo the model, and it, it, it creates excitement in an old model that was stale and saw huge incentives and lower volumes. So when they renew a, vo- a new model, it, that costs, that's like a half-billion-dollar project for a car maker. It's not cheap. Uh, for, for the higher-end makers, it's more like a billion dollars to do a full model change. Tesla has no full model changes, and they don't have any new models except for the Cybertruck, which, I mean, you can basically only count on being sold in North America because it's too big for, for other countries. Um, I think the biggest uh, problem they have is no new model price line, and, and, and the, and the uh, coming price cliff that they face once the chip supply is normalized. And um, I just spoke to Subaru on Friday. Uh, Subaru is an interesting company. Look at their stock price on Bloomberg, if you can, or wherever, whatever you have, from, uh, from like 2010 to, uh, to now. Um, they peaked out in 2016. In that year, they made 17% operating profit margins. Um, they did that on a, a model lineup that existed of four cars, four models. And what happened is they, they, they got so confident with their four products, which everybody wanted um, and generated, you know, 17 percent operating margins to now generating five percent operating margins and having five models. The fifth one, they launched too late. So this is what we're looking at in real time will happen to Tesla. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But let me challenge your motorhead. It was, you know, two other guys spitballing with each other. Like I get the long term, but the problem is. The CNBC crowd and Kathy Woods, they're just looking at the road right in front of them, not what's coming a year from now. So if we just sequence, walk through, you know, they're going to say, oh, they're going to be breathlessly waiting for the first quarter numbers and blah, 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 in the second quarter. So, like, when can you serve a, you know, really smelly dog poop and stick it in their face? It's not like what might happen, because let's be blunt, the burden of proof is on the bears right now because we've been wrong, right? So when are we going to have some hard data, which Ms. Woods is going to have a hard time explaining away. Well, in terms of market share loss, yeah, you're spot on, George. Um, but um, the thing is, when nobody else is producing cars because of the lack of chips, 
um, it, 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 I think that right there is a red flag that uh, most of the car makers in the world have their plants idled, yet Tesla continues to, well, they're starting to lose market share. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Motor, what's it, their, their share in Europe is really plummeting, but having said that, given that EVs are still gaining uh, share, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit disingenuous for the bears like you and I to say, well, look, they're losing share in EVs. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is EVs are, gro- are gaining share rapidly. So if you look at like sh- if you define share for Tesla as share of the overall European auto market, not just EVs, what's happening? What, let's look at it that way. What's happening to their market share of, 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 of cars, period, in Europe, not, not, not market share of EVs in Europe? Well, it's 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 going down, but uh, mind you, um, that uh, it's uh, is that uh, all the car makers right now in Europe who have a gun to their heads to to uh, create nothing but you know zero emission vehicles um, are prioritizing all their chip inventory for EV models that they rolled out, and um, so so as a percentage of the EV market, if they're losing market share. Um, versus a year ago, um, that's a bad sign. Uh, the uh, gasoline engine cars are actually going down more because right. uh, there's there's no incentive to get them out. Right, but what, so so what's happening? This is what I want to know. What's happening the last few months? Let's let's back up. Let's put hard numbers on this. What's happening to Tesla's share of EVs in Europe? And what's happening to Tesla's share of total auto sales in Europe the last few months? Um, I, I I don't have it off the top of my head, but in terms of share of the EV market, um, I believe. Uh, the last print I saw um, was they're down to about thirteen percent of total EV sales in Europe versus wait thirteen. Uh, that's it. And then and like where were they a year ago? About uh, they were over twenty percent a year ago. And a year before that, they were like even much higher. No, 30, yeah, exactly thirty percent two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then speak to um, okay. And you're also saying that right now they're slapping a chip surcharge on their invoices. Is that is that what I heard you say correctly? No, what uh, the U.S. car dealers who who are not um, they're not uh, they're independent dealers who who, you know, uh, are just selling cars for Toyota and Ford and 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 um, GM. Those dealers, because there's a uh, there's no inventory, they're starting to slap um, so-called chip surcharges. I saw a a friend uh, sent me a picture of a RAV4 that they that they were going to buy. And on the breakdown of costs or um, all on, of the price, they had a, a sixteen thousand dollar chip surcharge, quote unquote. You know, I, I, I get it. So the car dealers are making out like bandits. But could you for I need more caffeine. Could you explain to us? I'm sure three aces gets this. This is a joke. But can you explain for my benefit how this directly or indirectly affects Tesla, please? Yeah, well, Tesla doesn't have any dealers. So they're 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 raising their prices. They're watching what the uh, ice the uh, legacy got automaker it. Do. got it got it so, got it got it. Got so got like it. I just said, twenty seven percent price hike over the past twelve months on the Model Three and the Model Y. All right. So so but again, let's go back to Ms. Woods because you know I want her bad joke. I want her to get taken to the woodshed on Tesla. Um, when we look at first quarter sales and earnings, or Alec for second quarter. Are the bulls still going to be able to say, oh, look at this, look at this, look at how great it is? Like, when are we going to get bad news for the good guys? That's you and me. Like, when are we going to When are we going to um, have news which, and wait for it, Shill LeBeau, not Phil LeBeau, Shill LeBeau. I have a quick he'll, comment he'll, on even, this. Even he'll be forced to say, uh-oh, this is bad. That's what I, I'm I have about. a quick addition here. 
Okay. Uh, um, Motorhead, go ahead. Yeah, well, um, so it, I, I don't understand. I mean, uh, so they, they made something like 14% operating margins um, last quarter in Q4. And that to me is is just, uh, I mean, it's insane. It's almost as great as Subaru made, except they, they made uh, cheaper cost, um, you know, gasoline engine cars. The point is, I, I really don't know when the numbers will get bad, but I'll tell you this much. Um, at the moment, um, everybody I talk to is having real serious problems with raw materials. Now, the the ice makers I talk to, they... They're seeing, you know, engine part and engine materials go up a lot in price. But there's a lot of stuff that Tesla buys, too, even though they make um, electric vehicles that are going way up in price as well. And um, I think um, in, in the next quarter, um, you, you eventually see that these, um, these um, raw material prices hit, hit them, you know, a little bit harder harder and harder so i don't know exactly i haven't fully sat down i can't sit down and really do my model until they announce their their uh, qu- uh first quarter deliveries but i think what you eventually see is is that um that um they raise prices but the margins don't change and maybe they possibly go down and um one last thing about these price hikes which is what's making their you know what's making their margins so high there will come a point where the, the the average consumer just can't afford it anymore, and so I think we're seeing price exhaust exhaustion in their in in the in their product lineup. Right. Okay, that's helpful. All right, let's let's move on. Um, I want to. I'm going to break up the order here a little bit. Um, hey, hey, George. George, can I just ask a quick yeah. question? Hey, yeah, go hey, for Brad, it. How are you? Um, just a quick question regarding um, Tesla and something that's been on my mind. Uh, they're opening quickly or trying to quickly open these two new factories in Austin and in uh, Germany. And won't there be a problem with, I I know there's going to be a problem with parts and supplies and, and, you know, getting chips and different things that, um, I mean, there's been a lot of automakers talking about problems with Ukraine and some of the factories there that make individual parts. But if they're opening these factories and they don't have the ability to produce these cars, won't that become like a enormous cash drag on their earnings with these employees that are going to be standing around uh, doing nothing or, or having these factories that they can't produce uh, autos? I mean, maybe I'm just I'm, I'm not on the right path here, but it just seems to me that if they Tom, can't... Yeah, Thomas, your connection is really kind of bad. Okay, just, sorry. I'm just, I'm just going to answer it and just say that heretofore, I mean, if they open the Berlin factory, like heretofore, demand in Europe is being satisfied by imports from China, U.S., whatever. I, I don't know which, whatever. So I think what they're going to do is just, you know, they're going to supply it out of the Berlin factory. And then on top of it, they keep spreading the fairy tale that their problem is unlimited demand, blah, blah, blah. So they would have you believe that demand's not the problem at all. So I think eventually someday your, your question is going to become relevant, but I just don't think it's relevant right here, right now. That's all. Um, I mean, Motorhead, what would you say? George, actually, I think it goes back to your question. What, when do we see a, when do we see a huge disappoint that, uh, that the, uh, the shills and the Kathy Woods can't deny. And it goes, it, it jives exactly with, with what uh, Tommy's asking about. When you have these two, by the way, these two factories, uh, they can't hide on their balance sheet the way they hid their Chinese factory. 
the Chinese factory is a leased asset. Um, the, the, the CCP owns that. Um, and the way Tesla does their dodgy accounting, they don't, they don't book any fixed costs or depreciation until the, the plant starts producing cars. Um, and so what we're going to see is um, we're going to see a two factories in countries where they can't sit there and fudge the numbers as much like they did in China. And B, um, you know, you, they just ramp their prices up so much and um, they're going to have like hey, two times the supply. And so that's that's what's hey, gonna happen. Hey, 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 Motorhead, if if I have to, to comment on Tesla to get a word in, I will. Um, you made an interesting point, uh, Motorhead, earlier about uh, dealers and, and the opportunity there. I would love to, to comment on dealers specifically. And then if we are still talking about market sentiment, I do have a point there as well. Um, you know, for Excuse me, me Dan, Tesla, Dan, I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry. Yeah. We, I run a very strict room. We recognize an order. I don't mean to be a dick about it, but one of the, and you sound like a good guy, so I need to be respectful for you. But one of the reasons I'm very hard up about following order is because you, we all been in enough rooms where extraneous questions get thrown in and then the whole thing goes in a rabbit hole and it messes up the whole mojo of the room. So I will, I will let you speak, but I want to finish. You'll be recognized. You'll have your turn. But please refrain from speaking right now because we're going down a specific line of attack right here. You'll have your chance. Um, so Motorhead, um, I can't even remember what the what the. Uh... I was I, I was just, let me let me just finish. I, I was just saying you've got two two billion dollar plus plants starting production in Q two, um, assuming they start on time, and that's going to all float down to their uh, P and L and their balance sheet and. Um, it's, uh, I don't think it, I think, let's put it this way. Consensus estimates are just chasing the share price and the earnings, the, the previous earnings, previous quarter earnings. And I think that, I think we see consensus come down as these two big plants start operating. All right, let me ask you one last question, then we'll go to Darren. Um, and then we're going to do Mt. Gox. China. Okay. China. They're in the crosshairs. I mean, he's sucked up to the Chinese like nobody else has. Actually, from a market perspective, who knows what's going to happen with the Chinese. But if the Chinese decide to up their game, I could see Apple, Tesla, some others becoming, you know, getting in harm's way. You know, gee, Mr. Musk, nice, nice, nice auto company you got there. You're ashamed if anything happened to it. Could you just weigh in on your perception of what relations are like between Tesla and the, and, and, and the Chinese government right now? Is that a source of risk or, or does he still, or are things still pretty copacetic for him and the Chinese? Um. So there, there's a there's a big um, sort of conspiracy theory among the Tesla Q guys and the Tesla haters um, that uh, that, you know, the CCP one day will take the plant away and blah, blah, blah. Um, after they've stolen all the uh, um, intellectual property that Tesla has. Well, let me first say that Tesla has no intellectual property um, that any other car maker who's producing cars in China doesn't have. Um, and then number two, um, you got to remember that these Chinese um, provinces, so like, let's say Beijing versus um, Shenzhen versus Shanghai, they're at each other's throats to try to produce bigger GDP numbers than the other. And so for Shanghai to sit there and say, OK, we're going to we're going to shut down Tesla's factory, that's not going to happen. Um, they contribute so much to the to the uh, Shanghainese and surrounding economies from from their parts procurements there 
that uh, that's not going to happen. So the CCP will let them operate there as long as they produce money. And there are guidelines. There's there's some hard rules set out in in the uh, 2019 10K that shows exactly what the China agreement. Right, is. right. What, what, what is happening to what is the outlook for uh, Tesla's market share in China? Oh, Tesla's market share in China. It, you know. Um, just like in Europe, it's gone from being, you know, over 20 percent um, to now being in the low teens. Got it. And uh, so yeah. one, once they start, once they open up the Berlin factory, because if you look at what they do uh, only in domestic sales in China, um, their sales are, are pretty piss poor uh, and they've saved themselves by exporting the excess um, capacity to Europe. So once the Berlin factory opens, I think the uh, Chinese factory is in in sort of a difficult problem. And just FYI, by December 12th, 2023, um, if they don't have about uh, $13 billion in revenues, um, the CCP in their contract with Tesla, which is in Tesla's um, um, 10Q, um, they can they can take that uh, factory away from them. Is that domestic revenue or including exports, uh, Motorhead? That's seventy-five billion yuan. In domestic sales or including? Sorry, three hold it. Motorhead, thirteen billion dollars. So the question is that that's what production out, out of their out of their Chinese it's, facility. It, it's whatever they pump out of the factory. Oh, okay, okay. And what are they running at right now? Roundabout, you figure? Um, they're running at about. I think I'd like to hold on one second. I've got the uh, number right in front of me. Um, I think it's something like. Uh, Last last year, they did something like. Um, give me one second here. In terms of China revenues, um, they were at. Uh, sorry, they were at thirteen billion, and um, so they were there. Um, but uh, if by twelve by December, so by December by December twelfth, twenty twenty three. They have to have 11.9, let's call it 12 billion in revenues. Now, they were at 13 last year, but think of what happens after Berlin is up and running. They, yeah. can't, they, they don't ship any more Model Ys. The Model 3 is, is already a seven-year-old model. In, in Nor- you know this better than, than anybody, George. When a car gets over four, five, six years old, uh, people lose interest. And, and what, ballpark. Not interested in precision, but accuracy. Were exports, particularly exports to Europe, of that thirteen billion or twelve billion that they were at? Is, is that was it, were, were exports to Berlin and material to, to Europe a material material part of that? Um, the exports last year started ramping up as of like the second half of twenty twenty one. But um, uh, let's put it this way: in in the most in, in the last half of um, in the last half of the uh, um, of 2021, I believe something like over half of their um, production in China were, were exports. All right, all right, and, and then and then and then wouldn't the, well, of course the Chinese want jobs and everything, but isn't there sort of like a home port bias? I.e., to the extent that Neo and all these other guys grow their production and their gain is Tesla's loss, like wouldn't the Chinese rather have their own homegrown competition do better than Tesla? No, actually, um, the reason nope. why the reason why Neo and Xpeng and, and and those guys trade at at such you know ridiculous valuations is dis, despite making losses is because they're the only Chinese brands that can compete with Tesla. 
Um, the Chinese actually don't like homegrown brands at all. In fact, they prefer buying foreign models. So that's why Tesla in the EV space in China, it was, was so successful. You know, I, I agree with that comment, but could they both be true? I.e., would the Chinese in a perfect world, would they rather have the, the, the domestic producers do better than Tesla? Or, 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 or if Tesla's killing it domestically, the Chinese government's really happy with that. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, 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 the CCP, are you talking about the CCP or the Chinese com- consumer? I mean, no, the, the CCP, the CCP. Yeah. The CCP, uh, doesn't, doesn't give a shit. And, uh, uh, you know, unless you start paying lo- less taxes and All right, start. Got it. All right. I appreciate that. All right. Okay. So now we're going to da- oh, we'll tee it up here. It's going to be Darren and then Mount Gox and then KFIB. Darren, your turn. Hey, hey George, can I just, can I just yep. say one thing? Darren is the portfolio manager and CIO of the Sark inverse arc fund just well we're just gonna we're gonna that. we're gonna have some fun with darren darren the floor yeah. is yours okay oh, thank no, you darren for waiting yeah. no 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 so so just to clarify i'm i'm not uh the the cio of the sark fund that's matthew tuttle uh we have we have some good spats back and forth in the dms here on twitter but that is not me uh i do I'm run sorry a fundamental... about that darren. no no you're 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 fine three aces do... cut the fake news go on yeah yeah <laughs> cut the fa- i do run uh, a fundamental value equity basket of high conviction equities i cut my teeth on on wall street i'm ex goldman um you know i'll just weigh in quickly with automotives because we got motorhead here and that's been the topic of flavor of conversation and then i'll touch on market sentiment for a little bit but uh i just want to reiterate here uh, you know, as I'm as I'm trading money and I've seen the tape, Tesla is is not a stock. It's not a business. It's a religion. Elon Musk is their Lord and Savior. And reasons and fundamentals go out the window when you're looking at Tesla. If, if you're assuming you're dealing with rational market participants, just understand that you're not. So if you're you're either a side of a trade there. Uh, you know, one way or the other, you know, I don't have an opinion on Tesla outside of that, but I've always viewed it as a religion. So, you know, it's really hard to argue with somebody else against their religion. Uh, on the on the flip end of that, uh, you know, Motorhead, you've mentioned something uh, that's very interesting in, in the terms of the dealer space. So I'm going to talk my book for a second. Uh, you know, I run a, a high conviction equity portfolio and, and one of the core holdings in our portfolio is uh, Asbury Automotive Group. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard of them before, uh, but they're right there in line with that dealer space that you're anticipating to have tailwinds. Uh, 53% of revenues come from new car sales, and only about 12% come from parts and servicings. And, uh, you know, they've made some, some really great acquisitions over the years. Uh, their latest acquisition was uh, Larry H. Miller, a, a great brand out here in the West, uh, you know, that they added their, to their portfolio. Uh, they got about, you know, $437 million in free cash flow. I'm expecting them to gobble up, you know, maybe two or three more over the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, they are uh, right in line to be able to participate in this upswing, whatever the chip shortages are or, you know, just synergies that they have from coming online. Take a look at Asbury Automotive Group, ABG. That's something that I think that you would uh, have worthwhile to do your own due diligence there and take a look. Motorhead, any, any comments there? 
Yeah. Is, um, parts and services is always good because uh, that's, you know, you know, you, you, everybody gets charged a huge premium when they need to get their car repaired and um, the new car sales. Yes. If they're doing new car sales, um, that's pretty good. But my question to you would be how much have they price gouged up to now and how much will they have to reduce prices once um, new car inventory is replenished? You know, that's a good question. I think operating margins are still in the top 10% uh, of their uh, industry right now. So they have price gouged. Yes. Uh, who? Then, you know what? You know what? Yeah. Then, then, then they're in big trouble. No, no, no. But, but the acquisitions that they're bringing on, they're creating th- those margins in these groups that haven't had those margins previously. Uh, you know, one of those is, is just reducing... Uh, the amount of salespeople that they have at the dealership, right? Uh, one of Sorry, the I'm going to interrupt. Darren, 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 I'm going to interrupt. We're not going to talk discuss Asbury anymore, okay? We were talking about Tesla. That's what I said earlier. It messes up the, 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 the room. We're going down an Asbury rabbit hole. This is not a place for Asbury rabbit hole. If you want to talk about Tesla, you want to talk about the market, that's fine. But we're not talking about Asbury anymore. So, Darren, what, what do you want to talk about? Okay. Okay. Flipping off the Asbury, I'll, I'll, I'll come into what, uh, what initially brought me in the room here, which was market sentiment. Uh, you know, I had just shared at the top there, uh, the AAII market sentiment indicator and, uh, the AAII stands for the American Associate Association of Individual Investors. Uh, since 1987, uh, they've been just shooting out a very simple, uh, question each week, and then those results are compiled into this investor sentiment survey. Um, you know, what kind of predictive power does this have? I, I just shared at the nest there at the top. You can take a look. It's every week. Um, but but what uh, what's coming out uh, in terms of my analysis from this survey? We got data, you know, going back all the, all the way back to 1987, like I said. So you got a, you know, a big pool to be able to swim in. Um, but it's been a contraindicator. And it's been a contraindicator specifically when there's unusually low uh, bullish readings. So when there's an unusually low bullish reading, the S&P 500 will go up an average All right. so, sorry, sorry, Darren, I'm going to cut you months. off. We've discussed this before. This is sort of ca- I don't mean to be rude, but this is really sort of Captain Obvious 101 thinking. We've discussed this many times in this room. Um, th- thank you for that. Um, let's, let's move on. Um, Mount Cox and KFib. Mount Cox, what's up? Hey, man. <laughs> uh, just real short on the Tesla as a religion, if I can just quickly point out that the, the thing is that it has very low institutional holding. If you look at Tesla, there's a lot of retail traders, right? And an issue that Elon has is he's become increasingly political. The problem with going political is that you alienate people that don't agree with your politics. Like, People won't associate Tesla with what they thought they wanted to associate. Once he goes political, he will, you know, and that's that's been happening. If you follow his tweets recently, he's been posting some very political tweets, if, if you understand. So people are not going to, like, the retailers are going to be like, this wasn't, like, I believe in Christianity, but this guy's you know, talking about a different God. It's like, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this religion. So that's what I'm saying, that it, it looks like that could be, pretty significant that was just my two cents all right thanks to matt cox 
Uh, let's move on to KFAB. And after KFAB, we're going to do Abe. KFAB, what's up, my friend? Hey, George. I uh, thought I could offer um, some insight. And then I have a question, particularly for Three Aces and um, Abe, since Abe's joined uh, the room. Um, so, Mike, Mike Graham, and I'm uh, disappointed I didn't get to speak with Mike directly. But um, one of the things that Mike talked about, and I think the consensus in the room has been, you know, a lot of this is contingent upon whether we see a recession or not, obviously. And uh, that's where I think I can add a little bit of value relative to. Hold on, hold on, KFAB, hold on for one second. Yeah. Uh, can, can, can Three Aces or Mount Cox, can you hear KFAB okay? Is it breaking up on me? Is it me or no, is it He's Andy? breaking up here. Yeah, so K- he's K-Fab, breaking up. You, yeah, KFAB, can you get to a better place? Because we're having a hard time hearing you. Yep. Is that better? Yes. Okay. Sorry about that, George. Um, so basically, from a business cycle perspective, I think I can add a little bit of value. We've been talking about this, you and I, George, since September, really. That's about- a little bit bad. Uh-oh. KFAB, sorry. I'll go out and come back in. Yeah, you got to come back in. All right. Hey, my friend, what's up, man? Yeah. Hey, George, thanks so much. I have one uh, simple question for uh, Motorhead here. Can you tell me what the uh, portion uh, of the of uh, steel costs um, in order to manufacture a median like Tesla? And the reason why I tell you this is that over the last week, steel's risen approximately 30 percent. I've been managing steel for 30 years and I've never seen anything like it in 30 years in terms of supply constraint. So the reality is that um, if you believe or if there is a, sorry, if there's a, um, a high percentage of total costs deriving from steel byproducts or steel in itself, I'm telling you that that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, a, a brilliant question. Motorhead, if you could please, and I'm got, I just wanted to expand Abe's question a little bit. It's not a question he asked, but the point he's trying to get at is a great one. And Abe, I just asked you to consider it's not limited to steel. So if you could ask, answer the question, Motorhead, a little bit more generally, i.e., what proportions raw materials, and there may not be as much steel on Tesla because it's lighter weight crap and all that other stuff, but more importantly, you know, how much is raw materials generally, and then how much is steel in particular? Because it's not because Abe puts his finger on the right question. I just don't want people to be misled into thinking, oh, steel is 10% where, you know, if raw materials are 40%, it could be a much bigger problem. So fantastic question, Abe. Motorhead, can you speak to raw mats in particular steel? Yeah, sure. Um, the the the, uh, uh, the answer is I, I don't have the exact numbers. I uh, Steel has come down a lot, hasn't it? And, it? and it's like starting to rebound right now, I believe. Correct no. me if I'm wrong. Steel's, steel's on fire and you can't, okay. even, you can't even get it. That's the problem. Okay. So the number the, the number I recall was about five hundred dollars per unit in increased costs from steel, and this is when steel started really taking off um, in Q four of last year. Um, I mean, it's where it made a significant move quarter on quarter, and that's when I uh, sat down with uh, my favorite um, analyst on Wall Street who covers Tesla, Brian Johnson at Barclays Capital. Um, and we, we worked out like $500, $550 per unit. But they were raising prices faster than that. So um, it wasn't a big concern. And, and the, the volumes were going up so much. I think um, when it comes to raw materials, look, Tesla's raising their prices like, you know, twice a week like they did this week. So it's like they're, they're sort of on top of it. And um, there'll they'll come a point where, you know, um, the, the consumer just can't afford it. And, the, you know, the, the, the volumes decline. But the point is... The, the raw materials thing you should really be thinking about is there is not enough lithium 
for all these guys who are rolling out all their grand EV plans, like Volkswagen just basically jumped in the EV train and said, okay, we're all in, you know, and Daimler did basically the same thing. The smart ones like Toyota, BMW, they're not doing it. They're saying, okay, we'll, we'll do some, but we're not going to do all. And, and, and I think part, part of the reason is, is that um, by 2025, there won't be enough lithium on earth to make all the EVs that these guys are planning. So it's lithium that's the biggest factor. And lithium is actually not that big of a part of their raw materials, but it will be huge once, once there's no more supply. Hey, Motorhead, take a look at the nest. I just put up uh, Benchmark Minerals, who's the axe in the lithium market from a buy-side research perspective. It shows the discrepancy between uh, supply and demand there, according to these wackos with the green nonsense. Uh, it's in the nest. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, basically, the uh, depending on which, uh, you know, which... Um, lithium analyst you you look at um it's 25 or 20 uh 2025 or 2026 when there will be a deficit in terms of the uh, supply demand uh balance for lithium meaning that there won't be enough lithium right so motorhead that, that, that brings up the question every major manufacturer has committed i mean on aggregate hundreds of billions of dollars uh towards capex for this ev transition um, is there a, is there a, a built-in train wreck there in the major legacy automotive uh, makers? If you know, you know, given what you just said. Yeah, I think the uh, the new EV stocks like Lucid, Rivian, they're they're going to be in big trouble. And um, you know, everyone's talking about Rivian. Oh, they've got you know they've got as much cash as half their you know they have their cash is half their market cap. They're going to burn through that. And by the time they burn through that, there won't be any more lithium. The only car maker who's honestly come out and said 100%, yes, we have all, we've already bought the lithium that we plan to use in 2025 is Toyota. All right. So no more Tesla discussion. I'm going to, I'm going to, because we have rules in these rooms. There are things we don't talk about. We don't talk about crypto. We don't really talk about Tesla. The only reason we talk about Tesla is because you're an expert. But I don't want people just opinions. There's one of the fundamental questions I want to ask you as a former oil analyst. Can you just explain generally what's going on in the auto world in terms of supply chain, rising material costs, um, you know, potential demand downdraft in Europe because of what's going on there? Could you just make give us sort of like a 30,000 foot view on autos generally? And I'd appreciate if you don't mention the word Tesla. I think that um, it, uh, that you know, look. It, it, before COVID, there was 90 million units of demand for cars globally. Okay, um, and I think once COVID hit, uh, they the normal buying that used to go on. Um, uh, when COVID hit, by the way, that that's exactly the same time when there were some fires at some key automotive chip suppliers that sh that cut demand, and then as people went into lockdown. They all started buying, you know, Xboxes, Playstations, uh, whatever, and it just drained the supply of chips. So it's the, the chip supply shortage that has caused the undersupply of cars. And that's why used car prices are up like, you know, 70 percent since COVID started. Um, and so the uh, the the 30,000 you know, foot view from above is basically that 
Um, we're undersupplied with new cars. That's why used car prices have gone up 70%. And that that's going to normalize once we have enough chips to produce the normal rate. And once we go back to that phase, um, I think you'll have one year when when chips are back and then you see like the GMs, the Toyotas, the Volkswagens starting to produce normally again. And that's when you have, um, you know, that's when you have um, used car prices just fall down, you know, off a cliff. And then we're back to normal where it's a cyclical business. Hey, Motorhead, did you see that tweet that I posted? I tagged you on where Toyota said that they were reducing production by 180,000 units this quarter or this or next month or something. Yeah. Toyota's fall fallen into like multiple, uh, shit shows. And uh, one that happened this week was the, uh, 7.5 magnitude earthquake. Um, it shut down their key chip supplier in Japan, which they own a 20% stake in. So, um, it, it, you know, people are willing to, to give them a hall pass for that. But, um, They've just seen so many problems, which is why, you know, uh, once they really come back, the, uh, you'll see them come back with a fury in terms of earnings and volumes. Yeah, Motorhead, can I ask you one, one, one last question? And then we're sure. going to move off of autos. Um, so, thoroughly impressed. You have a comp. Obviously, you know what's going on. The other thing that struck me, though, is you've seen an accumulated, uh, uh, how should I put it, um, depression demand. In other words, if you look at trendline auto sales, the last few years, all the reasons you spoke to, you know, lack of you know, chip problems, lack of production, blah, blah, blah. Despite new car prices going to the moon, and for those of you that don't fully underappreciate this, it would be a topic for another room, high used car prices are a key component of demand for new cars. And But it's kind of weird in this situation because the reason that used car prices are so high is because of you know the lack of chips and lack of production but usually usually high used car prices mean that's all things being equal because so many cars are traded in is a positive for new car new car sales so my question to you motorhead is could you speak to could you quantify and could you speak to i seen recall a graph and i i'm interested in actually not precision like the last three years or whatever cumulatively since covid i think like total auto demand and i can't remember if it's for the u.s or globally is running, you know, millions, maybe it was just the U.S., you know, 15 million below, cumulatively over three or four years. There was underconsumption of cars for all the reasons you set out. Um, do you know what that number is? Is it relevant? And does it also not portend for when the chip shortage goes away that the, the automakers themselves might do well just because there'll be a, there'll be a, there's this pent-up demand for cars, just like in a similar way we have pent-up demand for housing because for many years, you know, housing starts went down to like 500,000, blah, blah, blah. So from a sort of a demand perspective, do you think because of this underconsumption of cars that, that we have we, we, we have this pent-up demand for new cars, and so when the chip shortage goes away, that, that, that unit volumes may pick up? That what might pick up? That unit car sales might pick up. Uh, oh, you yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, once the chip shortage goes away, then um, it, it, everything goes gangbusters. I mean... Um, People who, but the prices will have to come down. And so just, you know, as you, as you probably know, George, um, the shipment price from the, from the, uh, from the car maker to its independent dealers um, is, has not really gone up that much. Uh, they, they've, they've just lowered their deal, so-called dealer incentives. 
Um, so the dealer incentives have gone from like whatever um, $500 to $2,000 to their dealer to sell that car to zero. But the dealers are have gone up and above that and and said, okay, we're going to add a so-called chip surcharge of five to sixteen thousand dollars. So when when the when the new car supply you know comes back because the chip supply has been normalized, um, that's when you will see the dealers having being forced to lower the prices because there's going to be a normalized supply of new cars, and that's right. when the right. used car maker like Carvana that 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 will go tits up. Yeah, so, 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 so Mona, I, I don't want to like get hot because people in this room know me. I can go off on people, but <laughs> honestly, I don't think he's here anymore because I threw him out. But the guy I was you know, pumping his bags, pumping that Asbury thing, the more the more his lips moved, the more interested. I wanted to call one eight hundred stock loan right away. Like to me, it's like you know, a company like <laughs> that, just generically, without getting into what exactly how they're any better or different than the other ones. To me, that's like ground zero for things i look to short i mean that thing's been a huge bit they've all jacked their margins like what am i missing i'm, I'm looking at penske i'm looking at all those stocks to short as soon as possible so i don't want to pick on him it's unfair um because you're not here but for those of you who have a problem with the way i moderate there's a reason i moderate the way that i do because guys like that they come in here to pump their bags and they go down rabbit holes, and, they come, and we've had a beautiful room here. By the way, just want to let you know, we've had as many as 1,100 people in the room today. It's crazy. In the Bravo, lineup, Doug. In, Bravo. in the lineup of speakers here, I mean, Motorhead, you and I are going to be new guys friends. I didn't even know you before today, but I'm just looking at the top here. No particular order. Shrub, Motorhead, Abe, Alan, Alan, thank you for finally speaking up. KFab, Charlie, Matt Cox, hopefully David Colmer raises his hand. we got Mark Newman in the house. I hope he raises his hand. You know, Michael Green's gone. I mean, it's just unbelievable. What would you rather do? Spend your time in this room or go watch that Charlotte and Jim Cramer on CNBC? And by the way, by the way, you wouldn't believe the shit that, that people throw at me. I mean, you don't get to expose this stuff. I had some douchebag. Yeah, I'm going to use this word. I can't. Some douchebag back channeling me, complaining that I wouldn't let him up. I mean, he wants to pump his Tesla crap. And he, he wants to pump his narratives. He's telling me I'm a hard ass and this, that, and everything else. Listen, you're entitled to your own opinion. i got no problem with that. You're not entitled to your own facts. And what I like about you, Motorhead, is you're just telling us facts. People can do with that what they feel. You know, at any rate. All right, let's move on. So, um, KFAB, you're back. Go for it. Well, hopefully I'm back. Let me know if you can't hear me. Um, so I, what I just wanted to do is segue, because uh, maybe climb back into the discussion about the economic and, and business cycle risks, because uh, that seemed to be a consensus. It's like, you know, flows and everything that Mike Green was talking about, everything will be okay, or the regime could be stable, but if there's a recession. Um, so I wanted to talk about why I think the, the markets and a lot of people are probably underpricing the risks of recession. Um, and, and that has to do with basic business cycle theory. And, and as you know, George, we've talked about it since September, probably. I'm a, a long-term devotee of, uh, of ECRI, Economic Cycle Research Institute, and, and leading indicators that they, they use. And one of the concepts is basically when the business cycle gets into a period of vulnerability, uh, it, it gets subject to shocks. Shocks can create recession. And um, kind of an idea or analogy I use is like a pool cover, right? If all of the straps on the pool cover are on, you know, you can have an elephant walk across it and it's probably going to be okay. If you're down to just one or two straps, you know, one of Dave Callum's uh, Boston Terriers could, could 
drop us into recession. And, um, you know, the shutdowns were like an asteroid hitting the pool cover <laughs> uh, in 2020. So it's a dynamic relationship. And we entered into one of these periods of vulnerability, um, at, 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 you know, a few months ago. And, and this was all before Ukraine. And what I what I wanted to talk about and really ask Abe and, and Aces is, is, you know, we could be in the very early stages of uh, supply shocks, not supply chain problems. What Abe was saying, people can't source stuff. Uh, so you could have a dropping off in volumes of economic activity with prices going parabolic in various aspects of the economy. Uh, and, and the biggest consumption economy in the world is the U.S. Uh, so if you, you know, if you can't get stuff, you can't buy it. You know, if anyone's tried to buy furniture in the last six months, <laughs> we'll know what I'm talking about, right? So um, my issue has been, you know, George, that we're at the tail end of this cycle. And, you know, again, no one, I haven't heard anyone talking about what's going on in the European economy, what's going on in the EM economies. Um, so, you know, to me, the acute risk of economic damage in the next few months uh, in the U.S., where we get dragged down with all of this going on relative to the EMs in Europe and on top of this, I'd like to get the, the feedback of Abe and Three Aces on, like, what's their, what, what's their experience when you can't source stuff? Like, what does that do to... Uh, yeah, yeah Kay, 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 let me just jump in to make the question even more pointed. So, Abe, what if we're just in a paradigm now? I hate that term, new paradigm, one of the most overused terms out there. But what if we're in a paradigm that KFAB is saying, it's not even a question about price. It's you just can't get it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad this gentleman asked that question because that's exactly where we are today. Um, so let me give you just some context because I think you need to understand this. Um, he, he also had a second question, which was quite intuitive. You know, where are we in terms of, you know, how is Europe doing today? I can tell you that Europe on the ground today is incredibly soft very, very, very soft and actually getting worse. The level of, um, for example, you know, energy inflation on a year over year basis uh, in just uh, in heavy industry. OK, so factories, you know, things of that sort that is, that resonates with uh, people in Germany, for example, because it's one ginormous factory is what it is. Um, you know, the the year over year costs are have have risen 100 um, percent. OK, on a year over year basis, and there's no end in sight for, for, for this. Now, whether it's, again, you know, everyone cough, transitory or not, but you'll get some reversion. There's no question. So you, you, you are dealing with that, which, uh, you know, moves into the, uh, the narrative around it is soft. It's very, very soft across Europe today. OK, so um, and I can go on and talk to you for hours, but that's not what you guys want to hear. The, the other piece to this is that... Um, I'm a believer from what I've seen. Again, this is after 30 years of watching this stuff, okay? This is the first time I've seen such structural supply deficits. And so if you add, for example, when you talk about commodities and raw materials, right? Um, when you start looking at where the hell this stuff is coming from, you'll quickly realize that the stuff comes from the Ukraine. It comes from Belarus. So these are two, you know, Belarus is now sanctioned. Uh, Ukraine is a disaster. And so the reality is, I ask myself every day, okay, where the hell are they going to get this stuff from? So it's not a question of you wanting. We as consumers in North, America, in North America want. But the reality is, 
I don't know where the hell you're going to get because you continue to have massive supply shocks to the system. Okay. So just a final, um, you talk about raw materials, finished products or inputs to production. You can't just shut down factories. These factories that produce this stuff, you, you can't shut them down on a Monday and say, we're going to get things up and ready on a Friday. It, it doesn't work that way in this business. You know, you're down for months, eight, nine months. This is how it is. And so the reality is, um, I sus- what I see is sustained supply deficits for longer, further exasperating what the other gentleman was talking about was, uh, you know, the whole the whole issue with chips, the chips uh, shortages and the supply uh, issues around chips. Well, the other shit's just getting started. This is why I'm laughing, because I'm feeling this stuff on the ground, literally on the ground. Look, I had to literally this week, um, I'm turning away people because they're saying, you know, we, we want this product. We want that product. We want this, whatever. And it's all steel based. And I'm saying, yeah, that's great. But I don't know where the hell to get it for you. I, I, th- that's the problem I have. So now it's becoming a bigger problem because the demand is out there, but there's no, th- th- there's no probable um, sustained substitution for, for, these, for these products. And, and Abe, yeah. what, what's just now starting in the ag space, this is just the beginning. So when people are talking about 401k flows, what happens when inflation goes to 20% and you can't buy bread because there's food shortages? Like the dynamics of that, I don't think people are even beginning to understand the ramifications of what could be taking place in the next six months. So and, I'll, just, I'll just add to that. A tiny piece there because there's another piece to this and and i want to be very uh narrow because i know uh george is you know and and i like the way he manages the space no abe no abe 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 i'm yeah. from the third base coach you come around the bag go for it you can swing it do whatever you want because th- th- we're going to go long and deep with this thread so keep going okay so he- here's the thing that I-, I guess another thing that people are missing with all of this okay is that Right now, and again, I don't want to get political, but you need to understand what the hell is going on on the ground. Okay, right now, the Ukraine, Belarus, um, that entire region. Okay, because I know because I've been I've been doing business in that region for for 30 years. So I know the region. All of those regions are, as you all know, very ag rich, especially the Ukraine, especially the Ukraine. Anything to do with ag, anything to do with raw materials. Why do you think they're there? Do you think the Russians are there because they give a shit about, uh, you know, this, that or anything else? There's a bigger reason why they're there. Okay, and part of the reason is the fact that you have all these raw materials. So what I'm trying to get to is that when you start sanctioning, okay, and this is what I'm seeing on the ground. Okay, I don't want to get political. I'm seeing on the ground. Once you start sanctioning, what happens is that um, it's quid pro quo, baby. That's how it works. And so their their perspective right now, and I'm seeing it on the ground, is saying, oh, you want this shit? Well, guess what? Fuck you. You're not getting this shit because uh, I've been sanctioned on, on, on the other side of the equation. Okay, one side of the balance sheet. I'm now going to screw you on the other side of the balance sheet. And that's what's coming. That's what people don't understand. That's what's coming down the pipe. So you may want, but you ain't going to get because it's quid pro quo. And that's what's going on. He who controls, he, she, they, whatever you want to call it, who controls the raw materials, okay, 
will inevitably control um, the entire supply chain. Because at the end of the day, you can't make cars, you can't make parts, you can't make jack shit without Abe, 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 you the man. And you are now tapping into what I think is far more important than anything that's been said in this room today and is not spoken in polite, comp- in polite company because it's scary as shit. But if I hear one more time about how, you know, Russia only has the size of GDP, GDP of Spain or Texas and they're washed up and it doesn't, they're not going anywhere and blah, blah, blah. And then to listen to you talk and think about how important they are in all these markets, be it energy, grains, metals, et cetera, plus the capability to wreak cyber havoc of, 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 on par with anybody on the planet, ditto nuclear capability. I mean, they got so much freaking leverage. What I'm worried about, okay, is KFAB started to, he asked a question. It's the right question. That you think about this, and this goes to Jim Walker. I'm just going to rant here a little bit. Jim Walker, a few weeks ago, for those of you who were in the room, he was talking about comparing the ex the ex post with the ex ante world that we're all using as a frame of reference what the world looked like before all this started. And we don't know what the ex post world is going to be. It's still nobody knows. It's still resolving itself and, and clarifying itself. And his point was, and just to listen to you put the, the specifics to his general point. Yeah, many companies, they don't even know if they're making or losing money anymore because input prices and output prices are going all over the place. And then if we stay in this period of, 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 of chaos for a sustained period of time, you're talking about like very profound, most deep felt economic consequences. And I and I KFAB, is that kind of where you're going with it? And then basically it's like uh, it's like it's like a complete mess. We're not gonna be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together anytime soon. As it's happening. It's only sickos, and I say this affectionately, KFAB, to you and to Abe, because Abe, I think you're a glass half empty guy as well. It's only sickos that think these serious things. But, you know, you're going to look back on it afterwards and say, oh, my God, yeah, of course it went that way. Like, how could it have not gone that way? So, KFAB, yeah, you want to editorialize on that or edit that? or, or uh, Well, I was just I was just going to use an, the, the analogy I've been using. It's like people that were arguing that emerging markets were decoupled in the summer of 2008. Right. The, the, the Bovespa in Brazil made an all time high at that time in, in June of 08 of and their central bank was tightening and oil went to 147 in July. Uh, U.S. small caps and EM stocks really didn't hit the fan until August of 08 after Freddie and Fannie had failed. Right. So the fact that the U.S. market has been enjoying you know capital flows from Europe in recent weeks and we're still getting all these passive flows and everything else. You know, th- these forces that have been unleashed, this is happening. This yeah, is not- K- 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 hey, George. I, 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 no, hold on. No, 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 no. I didn't make the question carefully enough. It's not. It's less about markets, KFAB, more about just economies, how it all works. Like, so KFAB, could you speak to the economic side first, establish that? Then we could argue about, about the markets. Yeah. So th- this is where I think the when people are trying to grasp for analogies historically, there aren't any relative to a global financial war that has now been launched to what Abe is saying, where you're now going to have reciprocation. How do we know what the Chinese just did in Shenzhen and shutting stuff down supposedly for COVID isn't some kind of cloaked warning as far as supply chain with chips and everything else that's going to happen, right? We are in a whole new regime now of, a, of effectively global financial war. And the idea that that is not going to have, and this goes back to my, you know, focus on complex systems. When 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 shit starts to go wild, like you say, chaos. When this starts to get unleashed, stuff pops up from directions that no one can predict. Totally, KFAB. 
Totally. So, Abe, could you speak to – let's leave Mark aside for a second. Abe, can you speak to the economic chaos that KFAB is talking about? Like how, how, how this is not going to get resolved anytime soon? So basically what he's saying, and he's correct, by the way, my thesis is that you're seeing a global repositioning of, of um, economic trade zones and really superpowers throughout the world. This is basically you're seeing the jockeying now. This is what this is. OK, it's not it's not has nothing to do with covid and any other narrative. You are now looking at the next 50 years of what the hell the world's going to look like. OK, that's what it is. That's my view. Right or wrong. The economic impacts are very simple. The The reality is that you have massive disruption, massive um, disruption to labor markets because let's face it, someone said something uh, prior which resonated with me. What do you do if you don't have raw materials that's supposed to be coming in from the Ukraine because you're ordering, I don't know, 25,000 tons of steel and the shit's not coming anytime soon because it's stuck in Odessa? You tell me. What do you think happens to the recipient factories and the recipient manufacturers that are relying on this stuff after they've used whatever excess inventory? or safety inventory that they have because the whole damn world has been in a just-in-time inventory management system for the last 25 years. So the reality is you now start to see mass labor disruption right across the chain. What do you do with these people? I'll tell you what you do with them. You lay them off. You send them home. You tell them you don't have work. So now you're running one shift instead of three shifts. What do you do with the rest of the companies uh, that that are feeders into these um, manufacturing um uh, you know, uh, entities. You do the same thing with them. If I were everyone on this call, I would be more looking at Germany as a manufacturing zone. What the hell happens to Germany? That's what you do. You got to connect the, the dots, go back to Germany. They're the manufacturing powerhouse in Europe, probably one of the biggest in the world. If you've ever gone there, you understand what I'm talking about. So once you start seeing these disruptions, you're disrupting the entire economy, everything, social, etc. And so really what you're, you know, and the other gentleman said something really interesting. You, you know, it doesn't take much to create mass disruption. And that's what I think is happening. So you're looking at things that are being used, you know, it, you know, raw materials, inputs to production, supply chain management is now being weaponized, in my view. This is what's happening. You're seeing, you know, people, they woke up and they got smart and they said, well, screw it. We don't have to worry about sanctions. That's not a problem. Why? Well, because we own 20, 25% of uh, total world inputs to key uh, um, inputs to production. So we just won't sell it to them. That's what you're seeing now. Abe, Abe, just stay there. You are the man of the hour. We got to do a whole space where you just talk about this because this is, this is really the bear case. And to KFAB and to Abe, I mean, we're all enough to know Abby Joseph Cohen with her freaking Goldilocks. Like, Goldilocks is dead. She's dead. She ain't coming back. She's dead. And, and you know, to, again, to invoke Jim Walker, where, you know, the ex-post versus the ex-Andy world, the rules of engagement, totally, totally, totally new game. And we don't know the rules. Well, George, we, we, we do know some of the rules. What politicians are going to do is they're going to drag uh, CEOs in front of them and blame them for shortages. They're going to create tax subsidies for people, understandably to an extent, right? There's a lot of good faith and goodwill that happens to try and help people. But that's going to continue, you know, these subsidies for gasoline demand. Well, what's that going to do in shortages? When you have a situation where there's nothing to get delivered, 
and you're pumping up artificially, it's a violation of the most fundamental laws of economics. Yes, yeah, so, so, so Kayfabe and Abe, question I'd ask you. I mean, in case of you were just saying, you know, since the solution for high price, high price, if you're going to subsidize the consumer, though, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to work. Question I have for you, Abe and KFAB, I want you two guys to answer this. You can choose who goes first. So this narrative, you know, the conventional thinking, you know, first it was transitory. Now it's we're going to engineer a perfect slowdown. We're going to thread the needle. Of course, if growth is slowing, this is the part I, I just, I want to vomit. I want to punch people out. We've not seen this before. The idea that the economy is slowing and therefore prices have to go down. What the fuck? The Fed can't print more steel. The, the Fed can't print more oil. The Fed can't grow more grain. So, you know, looking to the future, everyone's looking at the past, you know, you know, we had this great moderation, and everyone wants to give the Fed credit. You know, they engineered this all like horseshit. You, 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 you had the great Eurasian, you know, savings glut, moderation, advent of technology, you know, globalization, offshoring, blah 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 blah. The list goes on. Now, not only can you strike most of those off the list, the movie's running in reverse. So, Abe and KFAB, thoughts about inflation in this type of scenario? Thoughts, and then Alan, you weigh in after them. Abe and Kevin, Abe, go for it. Look, it, it's you've described it to perfection, right? Um, and you're right. The, we have never seen anything like this, uh, or perhaps I haven't in my in my you know 27 years. Um, so you have this is what what I'm seeing, and this is what you're looking at. This is kind of an anomaly. You have um, you've got supply deficits of key of key inputs. You have inflation that is running rampant. And I'll speak to you on the ground what the hell that really means. Um, and you have um, a slowing global footprint uh, because it is slowing. Make no mistake. It is slowing. And at the same time, we have um, a maligned central banking um, system throughout the world that, you know, has been doing the one trick pony since 08. Uh, which is essentially, you know, we'll do QT, we'll, you know, uh, we'll pervert the um, the yield curves and uh, and and whatever the impacts are in order to grow, you know, this wealth effect, blah, 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 whatever. Everyone gets it. Um, and what George said, which was which was so profound, um, you're not going to be able to print more steel. You cannot print more um, uh, crude. You cannot print more green. You can't. Pr you cannot print any of these things at the moment because you have uh, essentially a perfect storm. And I'll, I'm going to tell you, for me, it's rather scary because I don't know how the hell you get out of this situation. Um, the other thing I'll say from an in from an inflation perspective, let me just make it super simple for everyone. What's happening on the ground is that wages are moving higher. The reality is that. Once you enter into a, a, what I would deem a social contract on the ground where wages are going higher because inputs or key um, uh, inputs to survival are moving 3x more than what the hell you've received on an after-tax basis, you're cooked. You are cooked. And that's part of the problem. This is what I'm saying, stringing the needle or, or you know, connecting the dots. So... Do you go back to the, the concept of is this thing sustainable? Is it transitory? Well, I can tell you the way it looks like today, this shit doesn't look like it's transitory anywhere. 
it's 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 embedded. It's it's. So, oh yeah, so, so, hey, if I interrupt you, basically yeah. what you're saying is, yeah, the way we make prices go down, we, we get a recession. I mean, the problem yeah. I have is equities are screwed either way. Either they keep putting more money in subsidies, and they they just keep underwriting this whole thing, and inflation just goes up and to the well, right, or it, or <clears throat> prices go up so much, incomes are getting squeezed as they are now. We get a recession. Tell me what you, know, you feel lucky, yeah. punk. Tell me what you want. Either way, equities are screwed. How would you respond to that? You're, you're, you're absolutely correct because you know everyone talks about a PE uh, ratio, right? All right, price and earnings. You think at some point that earnings aren't going to get clobbered with the uh, infrastructure production going through the roof? That's really what it is, and it goes back to you know the the other story, the other uh, narrative that we had earlier about Tesla. Not that we want to talk about it, but there's only so much of price appreciation that you can pass on to consumers at some point, they just say, I can't do it anymore. So this is what I see. I'm just trying to connect the dots and I'm saying, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, the, all these guys are getting killed. And at the same time, they can't push the price on anymore. So earnings are going to start to fall. And as a result, equities, uh, equities are, are, are greatly exposed from yeah, a George, perspective that yeah, no one is counting. KFAB, what do you got? Yeah, yeah. I'll just lay out my hypothesis: um, is that we're going to get all of the forces that Abe's referencing will get um, volume declined, price shocks, where you could see, you know, headline CPI go to I don't know twenty percent. Who knows? Something, something that would be abstractly crazy. At the same time as the economy is uh, either you know on the cusp or into recession, uh, and that will create demand destruction. Uh, global recession, a severe global recession, if not the D word. Uh, and then that becomes the big question as far as what do central banks do and what do governments do? Do we stay in the quantitative easing regime, which in that case, you want to buy the long bond hand over fist. And that's probably why the long bond has stayed relatively stable, uh, even with rates going up. Uh, but it introduces the risk of, you know, MMT, Direct monetization, funding, K -K that kind K of stuff. KFAB, it's like one addict, you offering another injection to another, me. You're now going, like, I always shout people down. You and I think the same way. Like, I never want to talk about, I, I, talk about Weimar and all that shit. It's like, come on, let's get real. But honestly, the Japan picture, just started Weimar this week. Yeah, the picture you're painting, KFAB, and I can't disagree with you. You know, it's, it's, it's like on the... It's like, you know, NCAA's March Madness, you know, on, on the road to San Antonio, on the road to Weimar, okay? This is a necessary but not sufficient condition on the road to Weimar. This is how you get Weimar. And, 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 and who, who does it first? I mean, that, that Mike, Mike Green talked earlier about how's the yen acting. Look at what the Japanese are doing. Now. People have been talking about, you know, the Widowmaker trade for how long to the point where no, one's, no one has it anymore because it's been so horrible. Yep, yep. And meanwhile, you watch CNBC. I can't resist. Hi, Mr. Kramer. This is KFAB. I own uh, Tesla, Carvana, and uh, NVIDIA. Am I diversified? I mean, dude, there's a fucking tsunami coming, all right? Abe is so eloquently laid it out, and it's like Rome was burning. No one's paying any fucking attention. So I, I don't know. Abe, like, I mean, seriously, like, this is just, you. I think you two, I think we got it nailed here. I mean, so Abe, KFAB, anybody, and, okay, Alan in, in the conversation. So Alan is more of the economy is going to blow up. It can't take the inflation, the price increases, blah, blah, blah. And, and that may be true. But either way, okay, I want someone to make the case 
I want someone to make the case on stage is is to because I'm believing my own bullshit now, and I have I have friends who believe their own bullshit too now. The same we're singing from the same prayer book. And Alan, you may be the wrong guy. You may just say to me, you know, get, get a depression or Dave Collin. Explain to me how we're wrong. Because to me, this looks this looks patently obvious. Alan, yeah, George, George, I got to drop down, so I'm just going to listen. I got to. Right, right, right. Thanks, Before, thanks. Alan, Alan, the floor is yours. Okay. First, I don't want to get into the inflation situation, but I think it's completely unsustainable. Um, once you understand that. No, Alan, let's be very clear. I want to make it clear. It's not that we have to bet on inflation or otherwise, but just either way, equities are fucked. I mean, you okay, may let, say, let me let me let me tell you. Sorry, on, I have something on. very basic. Okay, you have um, inflation in non-discretionary goods, and you have real incomes that are down. So more and more of the consumer's budget is being allocated to things they have to have. They have to have heat, shelter, and food. And more and more of their budgets are allocated to that, leaving less money for discretionary purchases, which destroys demand. That's all I wanted to say. Totally agree with that, Al. But, you know, it's really, it's a bifurcated uh, economy. I mean, we got this. this totally patient. bifurcated. Yeah, so, so, so the 40% of the guys that live paycheck to paycheck, they're getting destroyed. That is why the Biden administration, you know, they did a bad face two, three months ago. They said, pal, you got to go kill inflation. So that's true. We agree with that. The flip side is, we haven't talked about this yet, maybe someone wants to weigh in some nice anecdotes, but I'm hearing stories like you wouldn't believe, but you, you piece enough anecdotes together, it's not a rabbit hole, it, it paints a picture. So for instance, fact, not opinion, all right? Um, I agree, but if you look at the inverted yield curve, it's telling you that no, down I, the road... Alan, let me finish this thought. You don't even know what I'm going to say. Sorry. So everything you say is true, but here's what's also true. The pe people that you know own assets and equities and real estate... They're living. They're living on Easy Street. If you go up to like, uh, you go out to Vale, go to Little, uh, go to Aspen to Little Nell, a room which used to cost like six hundred bucks, six thousand dollars. Sorry, three thousand dollars. Lift tickets, three hundred bucks a day. One of my friends was in St. Bart's. He's like, you know, St. Bart's ain't exactly uh, cheap. Usually, it runs around New York price to go out to eat. It's double New York. He doesn't drink. Dinner for two, two fifty to five hundred bucks. Yep. Friend of mine owns a place up in Killington. You know, he's getting three thousand bucks a night renting a on Airbnb. That would have been five hundred bucks, you know, a couple of years ago. So the point is, both are true. What you're saying is the average guy's getting killed. Meanwhile, the Hamptons crowd that's going between, you know, they left Midtown, they fled from the Hamptons and West Palm. There's such price inflation, the gouging that goes on, sort of analogous to what we're talking before about sticker prices on cars, is unbelievable. So I mean, we've never seen this before. I mean, Abe, you got any reaction to this? Well, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it all over. It's exactly right. The question is, you know, when does when do you get some level of reversion? Because it's it's just complete insanity. I mean, that's all I can really say in, in in that. I'm just looking at it more from a you know a manufacturing, a business, you know, productivity kind of uh, environment. It's it's not tenable. It's this is this is the issue, you know. So okay, so so Alan, back to you. So so let's say we go with your view of the world. This is not sustainable. The point is, listen, the point is, equity is going to get screwed either way. We're not going to have Goldilocks. It's too hot or too cold, right? If by some magic thing they start issuing stimulus checks to everybody to pay for all this, hello Weimar, hello inflation. You're saying not going to happen. We're no, no, no. That that would be bad. Any direct stimulus is bad. Right. I understand. So if you take direct stimulus off the table. 
Then we go to Allen Levinson recession depression checkmate game over. Thanks for playing. Like what am I? What are we missing? Like that seems to be pretty obvious. You're not missing anything, George. That's no, exactly nothing to miss. Mark. It's just very basic. We had a credit impulse that was contracting nine months ago. You had velocity of money that's been contracting. The increase in money supply was basically reserves that the Federal Reserve was um, um, giving to the commercial banks and pension funds. And the commercial banks haven't been lending the money because they realize the economy is anemic. You had central banks in Europe that had negative interest rates at the same time they were espousing that you're going to have a strong economy. How can you have a strong economy with negative interest rates? There were mortgages in Europe that were negatively amortized that you buy a house for 300000 and 30 years later you pay back 288 like, <laughs> It's the truth. And, I know. And, and it's, it's how – listen, it's been 35 years of excessive debt. And the def- secular deflation that we've been experiencing. Uh, actually, actually, you know what? I mean, <laughs> I, I think we're, I'm going to interrupt you. Abe, Allen, Dave, Colum, Shrub, anybody on with the stage. And we're going to do Shrub next. And then, hey, and then George, hey, George can you hear me no, now? No, mute it. No, I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. Hold on. Just hold it. I actually think, and I don't want to get political, but Abe, and Al, anybody on this stage, that ultimately, I mean, we all talk about we need the Great Reset, Okay. I think, you know, in, in all, all the monetary games, the legal systems, all done. I don't want to be a soccer populist, but it's all done to protect the money class. The way you, you way you clean this up and get a reset, it's almost like it's po- not poetic justice. It's almost like it's ironic. It comes full circle. You got to blow up all this phony wealth. You need a cathartic wipeout. So the motherfuckers who are in the West Palm Beach or Aspen or the Hamptons, Blow everybody. Remember that guy that ran for mayor in New York? Alan, you'll remember this. A few years ago, the guy, the, the African-American guy ran on the rent's too damn high party. Okay. That is the fucking problem. All right. And all this, you know, asset inflation that's been, it's been underwritten by the Fed, the central banks of the world. That is the source of the problem. That has to be done away with. The wealth has to be blown up. So I don't know, Alan, Abe, anyone got to push back on that? All right. Let's go on to Shrub and then Dave Collins. Shrub. Um, so, George, just a very simple thing, because, again, something that is really missed in a gentleman, uh, I think Abe touched on it earlier. Europe is the biggest economic union in the world. And what's happening in Europe now is I, I, think, we've been, I think we're in a recession already. Um, and also, I've been saying about stagflation for the last six months. I think Europe is actually in a stagflation right now. It's a word that's going to come up more and more. And even the ECB acknowledged it on their last conference call. They said there is a risk of stagflation and they were serious about it. Well, actually, it's here. It's very simple to see why we're paying. Uh, you know, I, I told you before, the heating bills of friends of mine have gone up like five times in the space of a month or two. So imagine the impact on a household uh, where their bill goes from uh, you know, 10% to 20%. Uh, you know, when food and energy goes from 10% to 20% of their income, that's a pretty big hit. So especially since we didn't have the handouts that you had in the U.S. So you have this, the biggest economic union in the world in a recession right now and the, cons- the European consumer getting hit. And, you know, just put aside the tragedy of, uh, of Ukraine, but, you know, we're going to have three, mi- we have already three million refugees and that number is going to go to seven million. 
You're talking about, you know, one in 10 people in Poland are refugees right now. Um, and if you look at the numbers of the German ZU index, which is the German industry confidence data, we're back at the COVID lows. Now, that's insane because the ZU data has been quite accurate in predicting, you know, the cycle going forward as a forward indicator because they see the orders. Germany is the factory of Europe. So for the German indica forward indicator to be at the COVID low, it tells you how much shit we're in right now in Europe. And it's very simple. The industry cannot afford to pay the power prices. So a very simple example that we were mentioning earlier, the fertilizers. So um, in the US, you have CF Industries making urea. And in Europe, we have Yara making urea. Well, CF is paying $5 um, for gas. And Yara is paying like, it was paying 20, then 50, then 200. So what did they do? They shut down the, the factory. So now there's no urea produced in Europe, for example. And we're going to have to import it from somewhere. So going back to the, the conclusion of this, in Europe now we have stagflation. The consumer is bearish. The sentiment on the ground is bearish. And that will impact eventually you know, the earnings of Apple and the rest because you know, ultimately we are a big consumer of these things. We're not just a, a, you know, a, <laughs> we're not a small economy. And then the second thing I want to say about the asset inflation on the high end, because, you know, I'm based in Monaco and obviously we have, you know, we, we, we are the high end, uh, to be honest. The, the Russian bid has disappeared over the last two weeks. Uh, and the Russian bid is what's been keeping the high end uh, alive in Europe for years. Stop, stop, uh, stop. Shrub, say that again and say it slowly. Yes, exactly. You know where I'm getting with this. So. The Russian 100%, bid. Shrub, yeah, exactly. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> so, I'm in Monaco, and the Russian presence here is very strong. And the Russian bid has kept asset the high end high, the asset prices at the high end high for years. So right now, I'm looking at the villas in Cap Ferrat and the flats in Monaco. Those have been those prices have gone up multiple times over years. And one reason is the Russians. You go to the high-end restaurants in Kuschevel and Stad, it's only Russians. So those things, uh, that bid has disappeared in the space of two weeks. And very, I'll give you a very simple example. A private bank, the biggest private bank I spoke to in Monaco, they had five sales guys. Two of them were dealing only with Russian clients. And those Russian clients, most of them were frozen. And I got a figure. So this is just Monaco, right? Um, now, what happened afterwards, I think they unfroze quite a few accounts. But this, this is the same. It's not a Monaco-specific thing. This, I'm telling you, it's like across Europe. It's the same impact for all, European for all Russian clients. It was a European directive, and everyone enforced the same directive. I heard anecdotally that in, in Switzerland, there were 290 billion Russian deposits frozen, 290 billion. So you're talking about a serious um, negative, call it like a negative impulse on the high end in Europe that hasn't been really fully appreciated yet. And it will be felt maybe in you know, six to 12 months. But this thing that we're saying, oh, the high end, 
is, you know, going up and then the low end is going down. Yeah, but that was like that in 08 as well, guys. <laughs> and then suddenly they all woke up and, the, you know, your penthouse was down 50%. Well, I think I'm, I'm just sensing it now that... Hello? Sorry, I think I hit a button wrong. Can you guys hear me? Three A's, can you hear me? Yeah. I think by accident I hit the mute everyone button. So, Shrub, I'm very sorry. Could you wind the tape back 10 seconds, Shrub? Shrub, can you hear me? Unmute yourself, Shrub. Ah, uh, sorry, sorry. You so know, basically... it's my fault. I, I screwed you up. Can you just, can you just <laughs> I... go back 10 seconds, please? Sure. So, what I was saying is that the, the high end in in Europe, the bid has now... It, it, where I am, which is a big market, that bid has now frozen. And what I'm saying is that in Switzerland, for example, I heard anecdotally that 290 billion deposits of Russian clients have been frozen. Um, the house of pain. Yeah. So exactly. So basically, imagine in a few months, the high-end market, I think, is going to really, really feel it. Because every time in Europe you have a big villa, it's always, oh, yeah, a Russian is going to buy that. Or, you know, the yacht, oh, a Russian is going to buy that. So that's kind of done now. And I've already heard of cases of, you know, yachts being semi-finished and, uh, you know, jets being on the ground and crews not being paid. So, you know, the, the, the pain on the high end is, gonna, is, is starting already in Europe. And I'm All not right, sure when it's going to reach the U.S. Hit the nail on the head. So now back to you, Alan Levinson. You like them, Al them apples, Alan? Yes, it's very good. It's just uh, this is what happens in these uh, in, in these situations. They come after they come after different classes of people. They start with the low end, and then the high end gets hurt too. Just like in uh, two thousand, just like in two thousand eight. This isn't down much different. Hundred percent. All right, all right. So hold on. So now three aces, and Dave Collum. Three aces. What's up? Hey, hi guys. Real quick, George. I just you know this is the industry I'm in, right? Commodities, metals, and currencies. So I just wanted to make a couple of observations. You know, Ukraine, Sam, I think is about one and a half percent of global supply of steel, unless I got that wrong. <clears throat> um, please, you know, post something in the nest if you have something, I'd appreciate it. Um, that's, so, so now, um, the, 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 every single thing that every, pro every problem that's being articulated here is 100% man-made, okay? These are policy disasters, right? So... So the only the only uh, entity on Earth that's not bitching and moaning about any of it is China. Right. And the Communist Manifesto is scarcity and rationing. So so the issue one of the bigger issues that we have that I'm really, really starting to get my head around here is the LME, you know, 90 percent, 80 percent, some big, 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 big number of materials that that trade you know the coppers the cobalts and so on and so forth even the golds and silvers um never even hit the lme yet the lme is the god particle for every single contract on earth for price right so so if you just take for example nickel which has been in the news recently the entire worldwide supply of nickel in dollar values right prior to this catastrophic insanity that we saw is one day's trading volume for Tesla, right? It's one day's worth of liquidity. So now, if anybody doesn't know this, the Chinese own the LME. So the Chinese also own 
the global natural resource chain, right? Which means they own the EV battery chain, right? So there's no, there's no coincidence that our good fraud, Mr. Fink over at BlackRock and his little social credit score, ESG credit score, that is trying to put a bullet in the head of the hydrocarbon market in favor of the world's most plundering thing on earth, the electric vehicle battery. And I was in that industry for 10 years making those same metals in Africa. Right. The, the, you know, so so what's happening here, I understand all the consequences and all of the sort of lagging, you know, indicators that we're looking at. Yeah, yes, yeah, so, 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 so let, let, me, let me cut to the chase here. We want to, so hold on. So I'm going to ask three aces for you and for Abe because you're the commodity guys. Just keep it real simple, like three aces and Abe. This is a huge supply shock. Supplies just disappeared. Ain't coming back anytime soon. So all things be equal. No recession, or no recession, no recession. You can explain. God's name, the prices just not go up a lot. It's, stay it, up. You it's a price like, shock, George. It's a price shock, not a supply shock. Yes, well, no, 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 no. To Abe's point, supplies. It, it's both. Gone. It's both. I'll tell you what it is. Very simple. It's the same thing that happened to crude. Since 2012, all of these firms have been basically offline, starved to death from a CapEx perspective, a lot a lot of labor migration, okay? Because let's face it, nobody wants to work in these in these sectors, okay? So they've moved. So now you have labor disruptions, you've got uh, malinvestment from a CapEx perspective for the last 10 years, and now you have a perfect storm because you now have also sanctioned countries and you've got probably 100 million tons, okay, offline that are being sanctioned. So I ask you, if you think this is just a, uh, a pricing issue, it has become a pricing issue because of the fact that you've got structural deficits in supply that have now reared their bloody head in 2022. Yeah, but you're, you're referencing one material out of hundreds of commodities, Abe. I, I'm no, not disagreeing I, I, with you. I, I understand the, that. The emphasis and focus on steel or iron ore coming out of a country that that represents one and a half uh, percent yeah, of yeah, the global three, supply, three, three, I think no, is a little hold on, exaggerated. Hold on, hold on. You guys are both right. The problem is, it's not just steel. It's oil. It's everything. It's, it's everything. everything. It's everything. Which is why, Abe, I love you, man. That's why, like, you guys, you know, it, it's, it's like not just steel. I'm just using. I, it I as... know. I know. I know. The problem is, you're the metal guy, and people, you have to kind of like change your business cards. Say all things commodity, because you're to the point. It's not just steel. It's everything. It's met coal, it's crude, it's natural gas, it's the whole bloody compre- uh, complex. And, and, and Abe, do you see, I mean, give what we're talking before about, how, like, you know. Uh, no, it's work. not. No, it's not, Abe. Met, met, who, who in America is supplying met coal outside of America? I mean, the ESG bullshit, which I'm the one who've been saying Davos, Party of Davos, Fink, ESG, Fraud, CCP, the, the three for 18 A's, months. Three A's, three A's, but Met, Met Coke is not subject to ESG. ESG no, is just A's, an America no, three bullshit A's is, Hold on, hold on, hold on. What we're talking about here is if all of a sudden Belarus or the Ukraine aren't going to produce ne- neon, I think it was, or... No, I get it. There are some there are some things, but but it's not everything, George. And it's, it's more a of a price of thing. No, hold on. Stop, stop, stop. It's a lot of things. Energy? You can't re- if Russia says fuck you, we're not going to give you the oil. Good luck replacing that. There's well, no argument for me about energy. Okay, okay, I'm so saying. Hold on, yeah, wait, 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 I agree okay. with you okay, on okay, energy. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
we're ninety eight percent in agreement, and now our folks are in the two percent where we're talking past each other, and I'm just not going to ask. That's all. Well, no, all I'm saying is, is the pricing mechanism, George. What I said was earlier is the, the what happened here with the nickel thing has really brought to light that the pricing mechanism for these commodities is completely broken. Okay, you know, that's, the, that's right. true, but we're talking. That's about, a factor. That's now, hold a factor. on, hold on, but they're right. both true. They're both true. That's just, all right. Let's get off of this. I like. I'd really like to hear from if Dave Collum is listening in. I know he's he was listening. I don't know if he's there right now. But Dave, there you go. So Dave, welcome. What's up? What's your take on the on all this stuff we're talking about, the world, or anything you want to talk about, Dave? Well, first of all, am I the only one who's hearing a very computer-like metallic sound? Is that just my phone, or are you guys picking it, that up? It's, 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 it's George, and it comes and goes, Dave. It's okay, just George I just want to make sure it wasn't just yep. my phone. Um, so as usual, after listening a while, I've kind of a bulleted list. Uh, here's some stuff that I can throw into the pot this is like stone soup you know so george brings the 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 uh, kettle and gets everyone to add an ingredient um i sat down with the ceo of chemital before they became um rockwood lithium i happen to be an organolithium chemistry arguably the premier organolithium chemist um but it's not about lithium batteries um i asked about the rare earths and he said that's purely a pricing problem um he says there's plenty. Uh, they're just being outpriced by China. Uh, what you what you mining guys know is that when it finally comes time and we have to get it elsewhere, it'll take about 10 years to get the mines up to speed. So that, that should not be very satisfying to anybody. Um, as we we're talking about cars, uh, what baffles me is when you have a supply shock problem in a vehicle. I can't remember if the number is 3,000 or 30,000, but you have a lot of parts in a car. And not many of them are optional. So I'm a little stunned that you can make anything complicated with these supply shocks because all you need is, you know, the weak link problem. And so I know they're selling cars, missing chips and stuff like that. Um, so uh, you guys should keep your eyes on an emerging technology, which may never get there, um, sodium batteries. Uh, many years ago, I had a commodity chemical company approach me and said, can you go into sodium chemistry instead of lithium? It's much cheaper. We really could use it. Um, there's a, a chick at Caltech, and I, I kind of lost the thread, who's trying to develop sodium batteries, and that would completely solve the lithium problem. So you want to pay some attention. It might be not possible, right? might be sodium's too heavy, too bulky, too whatever, but it's dirt cheap in the non-sodium uh, zero form. So uh, it takes energy, of course. But um, So um, the discussions of supply shock and the cascading effects, uh, there is a group of people who are hiding their heads in shame for which this is a remarkably familiar territory. So you say no historical precedent. There's a whole group of, I will say, us, who spent enormous amounts of brain power to try to understand what would happen if Y2K went bad. And the entire thing is exactly what we're observing now. And that is you start asking what happens as you get cascading failures. And so I just thought I'd point that out. The Y2K crowd's going, here it is, just 22 years late. Um, and I, I've always been intrigued by the how... Um, how economies work in wartime. I, I, I can't even begin to wrap my brain around about how, how the whole 
magical dance. You know, in New York City, in a typical day, something like 7 million people eat lunch, and there's no overseeing committee. There's no one who's in charge. There's no prices being set. It's this magical dance of the free market system. I don't know how that magical dance works in a war. And so to me, we're kind of facing that problem, too, and it's really interesting. Um, I listen to this discussions occasionally. They go to sort of Fed and money flows and things like that. I don't find those that interesting. I think we're heading for a, a total regime change in our thinking. And it, you've, we got to it, and that is this idea of how do you calculate inflation when you can't actually obtain the goods themselves, right? Are they cheap? Are they zero? What, what, what do you put into your equation? So, um, so I, I think the idea that things will become unavailable. When I go to the store, I buy extra stuff. I'm, I'm back to full-blown prepper. I'm back yeah, to buying 40 Yeah, 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 yeah Dave, 100%, 100%. And thank you for that remark, and I take it as a compliment. We don't, in this room get into and what's the Fed gonna do? Hi, this is this is Abe from Toronto and I think Ben Bernanke's a putz and blah blah blah. No, we don't do that. I, I'm more. missing all that. That's that's buzzing in and say that again. Is it, is it is when I speak, is it causing a problem for you, Dave? No, it's better now, George. It's been horrible three quarters of the time this today. I don't know why it's doing that. All right, sorry about that. But Dave, you hit the nail on the head and you know, I, I, someone who's been in this room was a speaker in the last two or three months. I'm not going to mention his name, but if you think about it, you'll figure out who. He told me, you know, talked to him last week, well-known guy. He said this Ukraine thing is going to go on for quite a while. That, you know, Putin's no fool. It's not about the Ukraine. This is about putting the motherland back together. This is going to take, you know, weeks, months, years. It's unknowable. Nobody knows how it's going to play out. Not even Putin knows how it's going to play out. And he said to me in the context of that day, we talked about prices. This exact quote, this guy's not a bomb thrower. He's already a responsible guy. He's well known. He said to me, the next $100, the next $100 in the oil price is up. So You're still so, cutting out pretty big for me, George. I, um, I'm sorry. And that, Dave... He said the next price, the next hundred dollars yeah. for the price of oil is up. Yep. Right. I agree with that. Um, I so think I. what might be getting underestimated here is the role of China, which got mentioned. But I think the geopolitical problem is not just one of these accidents of geopolitics. I, I, if I had to write a script that was not being said in the in the press, so you've got this whole NATO argument stuff like that. I think it's quite possible this part of the geopolitical dance is being orchestrated by China way more than people realize. China is not just a player. China might be the player. And so China could very well be saying, you know, you do this, we'll do this, you do this, we'll do this. Last year, I concluded that somehow somebody was setting up a supply chain problem intentionally. And, I, I, and, and I've been reading books on China, and that is completely rational in the context of China's way of operating. They think very long term. And so I think as you're looking and trying to understand why would Putin attack Ukraine now, why would these – if you looked at last year, there were just constant supply chain shocks that didn't have to do with COVID, right? The Suez Canal, pipelines being shut down. 
And now you've got this problem where you've got a president who's owned by both Ukraine and by China. And, and so, so the, then the question is, who, who in this dance is playing a role that we're not getting? 100 percent, Dave. And, and the, the aforementioned speaker, um, he's really well connected. He said to me a couple of things. He said, one, and, and, and again, I want to mention his name, but you can take this to the bank. This guy is very solid. I've known him three decades and he only has the highest information. He said that um, a deal had been offered to um, Russia. This goes back a month ago, before all the extracurricular activities started. They were offered a deal for, for 50 years. 50 years. The Ukraine would not become part of NATO. Putin turned it down. So um... it's also the case. It's also the case that, you know, they're not stupid. We're playing checkers. Putin's playing three-dimensional chess. It's totally anticipated that we'd try to mess them up with kicking them out of Swift and impounding their money. That basically a deal was cut where, you know, G reaches into the petty cash drawer to underwrite this whole thing. Not that he's fomenting it, but I think the bigger the bigger story here, and Dave, I really would like you to weigh in on this. You know, we're clearly in a war, but the war's not being fought on the battlefield. It's an economic war. It's, 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 an, it's financial war. In that, when you think about the potential for the U.S. to lose control of the financial system, the SWIFT system, the payment system, and that then that U.S. dollar hegemony is our, our biggest, one of our biggest assets, and nothing would give the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, even the Europeans, greater satisfaction than to see us lose control of that. That's really one of the biggest things at stake here. So it's an economic war, and you know, you think about it. If they really want to, Putin understands, you really want to undermine the West, it's not about turning Ukraine into a parking lot, which, by the way, this my source told me he's going to do. It's about if you can cause economic chaos and there, and you can't get your, and, 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 and supply chains break down completely, you just can't get it at any price. And that brings on big economic instability and causes a destabilization of Western capital markets. I mean, gee, if I didn't know any better, that sounds like a pretty good plan to me. I mean, Abe, what do you, Abe, what do you think of that, Abe? hundred percent. That's exactly what's playing out. That's totally. So you have all these putzes on CNBC, breathlessly reporting the invasion today. This person got killed. That that building got blown up. It's like they're it's like they're completely missing the plot here, completely. And that's what I think is at stake. In you know, meanwhile, people come on and say, "Well, you know, Tesla twenty times revenues down from thirty times revenues." Kind of looks interesting right here because on the Fibonacci and RSI, it's oversold. I'm like, really? I mean, Abe, I'm going to a really dark place. I mean, I, I'm afraid you're just drilling, you're drilling the hole deeper for me. But what part I, of that you agree with, disagree with? I don't think it's, I don't think it's dark at all. I think it's just the reality of, you know, um, of geopolitics, and you really have to appreciate it. You look, look at this very simply. Just be rational for a moment, okay? Um, you've got countries that are sanctioning Russia at the moment. Okay, ask yourself why Germany was one of the abstainers. Just ask yourself, why did they abstain? It's very simple. Because they need um, all the raw materials. They need energy, primarily energy, in order to keep their factories running, in order to keep, you know, the the entire country at full employment or whatever it was on Friday. Okay, because it's going to change day to day now. All right. This is geopolitics. And the reality is that you're getting, um, you know, uh, complete repositioning. But you're also getting Russia that also has a hammer. 
This is the reality. This is the joke. I'm laughing because I'm saying to myself, what are you guys doing sanctioning for Christ's sakes? You're sanctioning what? You're going to import inflation more than you know. And it's happening here on the ground in North America with all sorts of stuff. So it doesn't really help anyone. It's actually killing you because they're going to export their shit at a higher spot price. And they're going to fund whatever adventure. Guys, okay, guys, Goldman is pricing LME nickel at 35% below spot. So listen, 90% or more roughly from gold and silver on down on the LME never even hits the LME. Yet the LME price, okay, is what's used in every single offtake agreement in the world. And you know that, Abe. The issue here is not supply. I can show you maps I, I i produce these things i'm in the I'm, I'm a ceo i make this stuff okay i know how this stuff works i can show you maps right now my maps of various countries 95 percent of some of the richest mineral countries in the world aren't even licensed up for production okay so 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 the, the it, you know i'm not sure what's going on in china this is all china they own the entire natural resource chain maybe dave Callum can help us, but I think everything that everyone's saying here, if we're investors and we're looking at, you know, what the investment concepts may be, all roads lead to gold and silver. I'd love Dave. No, no, no argument there. No argument there. I want to bring someone else in the conversation on the spoken aids on stage. Storm, always good to hear from you. What's on your mind, Storm? Storm, can you unmute yourself? If you're listening, there you go. What's up? Yeah, no. Hey, good 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 afternoon to everyone. I just shared up in the nest. I was listening to Shrub and I saw the article on stagflation and I, I kind of what resonated listening to the panel of speakers is, you know, that with the 40 percent of M2 supply that's been pumped into the system, it's like too many dollars chasing too few of goods. And, you know, the opposition to the economics of what's going on. You know, these these bad actors, you know, you you name them, you know, sovereign states, sovereign wealth funds, whoever, um, you know, they they obviously have an agenda. And what's difficult to disseminate is, you know, they have their propaganda machine, you know, pumping day and night nonsense, utter nonsense. And it's refreshing to come into a room and actually get guys in a room that actually see the writing on the wall. And whether it pans out in the next six months or 18 months, you know, the tsunami that someone referenced earlier, it's coming. So, I mean, that's all I had to share. Um, appreciate the space because it's refreshing to get information that's actually, you know, worth a damn. Yeah, I appreciate it, Storm. Always good to hear from you. All right, guys, we've been at this for three hours and 45 minutes. Um Unless hey, George, you mind if we bring up Bob Coleman? He's an expert in physical gold and, and silver. No, and I don't want no, to. No, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Sorry, I'm not going there. Um, so I, I don't want to talk about gold and silver. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. Because um, that, that starts to get into that becomes a highly politicized. Um, um, it kind of gets like to like Bitcoin and stuff like that. I don't want to go there. We can do another room on that. I don't want to go there now. Um, all right, so let me see who else is up on stage right now. Um, all right, with that, unless anybody, I don't want to do gold and silver, we're not talking crypto, we're not talking Tesla. Um, 
I think I'm going to close the room unless Tracy, you got something else you want to say. And disappear. All right. With that, um, thanks, everyone. It's been a great room. We'll do it again. Take care. Bye.